Hello friends! A couple trigger warnings on this episode. In the Bedroom deals with an abusive relationship, and A Beautiful Mind is about living with schizophrenia. Listen at your discretion. Now, this is the moment you've been waiting for. The nominated are for the best motion picture of the year. And from an abundance of excellence, we have nominated. Well, we come now to the final award of the evening, the one for best picture. And here are the nominees for best picture of the year. When we're at the movies, we're not alone. And the Oscar goes to? And the Oscar goes to? This seemed like a better idea in rehearsal. Welcome to Nominated. I am your host, Haley, and this week I have not one, but two guests. I have Kristen and Josh. Hello. Hello. Thank you both for joining me. Josh, rather aggressively so. <laughs> I, I mean, I heard you were watching Lord of the Rings, and I wanted to watch Lord of the Rings with you guys. <laughs> Didn't give a crap about the other stuff, but he got super jealous. Not, most of the others turned out to be quite fun to watch. So it, right. You know what? It was surprisingly a good year for the nominees. Like, I... I have feelings about one of them, um, but the majority I was like, these are good. These are entertaining movies to watch, which is a nice change of pace. Right? Truth. I'm like the little slog the last time I was on here. And uh, Gigi was good. Gigi was really good. I liked Auntie Mame, but then um, there was a lot of racist undertones, if not mm -hmm. explicit racist and the others and while it's important like we talk about how it's important to talk about that doesn't mean that it's not difficult to watch yes yes yeah. um a couple of difficult to watch ones in this batch too um, <laughs> uh, so we chose the year 2001 which had five movies nominated for the best picture oscar and they were a beautiful mind gosford park Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring, Moulin Rouge, and In the Bedroom. Um, which film do you guys want to start with? You can rock, paper, scissors it out if you have to. Gosford Park. Okay, sure. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I'm into it. Uh, so Gosford Park is a satirical black comedy mystery film. I don't know where the satire comes in, but uh, it was released November 1st, 2001 produced by Robert Altman, Bob Balaban, and David Levy. Directed by Robert Altman, written by Julian Fellows, cinematography by Andrew Dunn, edited by Tim Squires, music by Patrick Doyle, and it runs 137 minutes. Uh, my, so I usually write down the stars of the film. This one I just said, read the wiki, because it's like 20 people. And they... They are all significant. So when I get into the um, summary, listeners, uh, it, I'm going to gloss over a lot of things because there's a lot of really intricate character connection uh, that mm -hmm. is relevant but is not necessary to understand the story. Gosford Park stars Michael Gambon, Kristen Scott Thomas, Camilla Rutherford, Maggie Smith, Charles Dance, Geraldine Somerville, Tom Hollander, Natasha Whiteman, James Wilby, Claudie Blakely, Jeremy Northam, Bob Balaban, Ryan Philippe, Lawrence Fox, Trent Ford, 
Kelly McDonald, Clive Owen, Helen Mirren, Eileen Atkins, Alan Bates, Emily Watson, Derek, ja Derek Jacoby, Richard E. Grant, Jeremy Swift, Sophie Thompson, Meg Wynne Owens, Adrian Scarborough, Frank Thornton, Francis Lowe, Stephen Fry, and Ron Webster. Ooh, Ooh. Stephen Fry. Yes. So I have a very difficult question. If we now know there's a Tom Hollander and a Tom Holland, is there a Tom Hollandist? Yeah, he made that joke during the movie too. Yeah. Like, I'm so <laughs> mad at you right now. Right? You both love it and you know it. We, I do. <laughs> that. Um, I will say very quickly, I spent 90% of the movie watching Tom Hollander and being like, what do I know him from? Why is his face so familiar? What is his voice? He's Cutler Beckett in Pirates of the Caribbean. Oh, fuck, you're right. <laughs> That'd do it. I looked up his yeah. IMDb. I'm not making it up. Well, he sounded a bit familiar, but I was just, I was more like, I think Josh and I were too fixated on being like, is that Stephen Fry? Holy shit. <laughs> <laughs> I, which is, and it's only like 20 years ago. This film is not that old. Um, that's what smoking for most of your life will do to you, kids. Mm. Um, <laughs> PSA. <laughs> yep. Uh, Gosford Park was nominated for Best Director, Best Supporting Actress for both Mirren and Smith, Best Original Screenplay, Best Art Direction, and Best Costume Design. Uh, it won Best Original Screenplay. So the story of Gosford Park, um, it's a very Agatha Christie start to a film where a bunch of upper class white British people in the 1930s arrive at um, a hunting party. They've, they've gone to someone's like uh, country house and they're going to have a hunting party. And so it's, you meet a bunch of servants, you meet all of the people that they serve and all of these weird interactions. There's like the head of the family who's invited everyone and everyone relies on his money and um, some of them are trying to beg for more. Some of them could care less about him. There's an American from California who's making a Charlie Chan film um, that's a mystery film. And so he keeps calling California to talk to them about casting and things like that. You've got the servants who uh, know everything about everyone and live vicariously through their masters and uh, try to navigate those intricacies. You've got a... Uh, valet or valet, as they say, who does not know how to do his job and seems to think he's more important than he is. That's uh, Ryan Philippe's character. I forget what his name, Henry Denton. Mm. Yeah. Um, so we, we kind of get our general cast of characters. Uh, again, I'm not going to go through each one individually because there's a lot of them. It's absolutely worth watching this movie. And um, Shoot, what happens next? Oh my god, I should have written better notes. Ah, so they uh, all arrive and they're having a dinner. Um, the servants have dinner first and the valet, Henry Denton, that nobody really trusts or understands, um, starts prodding at the other servants like, oh, was everyone, like, were your parents servants or is this like... A job you come by honestly through your heritage. Um, turns out one of them actually grew up in an orphanage, was not necessarily an orphan, but grew up in an orphanage, which is very awkward for everybody involved. Um, after dinner, 
there is a, a silver carving knife missing. Everyone's trying to go, um, everyone's trying to find it. It's not really that big of a problem upstairs, but downstairs, they're very concerned about it. Um, Henry Denton, the valet, again, he, uh, he manages to worm his way into Lady Sylvia's apartment or rooms. Um, Lady Sylvia being the wife of our uh, main character, our, our patriarch of the family, uh, William McCordle. So Denton and Lady Sylvia end up having a sexual encounter, uh, which was weird on a lot of levels. Uh, I can't sum up this movie. It's so hard. Basically, goes on in it. It's, it's, it's just like family drama. It's, it's Downton Abbey meets mm -hmm. Agatha Christie. Um, I'm going to try to shorten this up as best I can. Essentially, everyone is trying to get more money out of Sir William McCordle. And he is near one of the last days of the hunting party. He is found dead. Um, the moment that he is found dead is very shocking because the majority of the house upstairs and downstairs were near or in the drawing room listening to uh, their resident uh, Hollywood superstar play the piano and sing songs because um, it's the 1930s and they didn't have Victrolas apparently. Um, so we now have our dead body. It is the patriarch who it seems like basically everyone hated. So pretty much everyone had a motive. He was. Uh, Gee, I don't know if you uh, could relate to that at all. 100%. <laughs> um, then we have our inspector who arrives, who bumbles 90% of this uh, investigation. I have no idea how. The investigator in this. Like, yeah. So you were asking where the um, satire, the satire comes from? Yeah. It's I... the bumble inspector uh, who completely... Like he's got this wonderful forensics guy who comes in and he's dusting for prints. And every time Stephen Fry just goes to like grab liquor or whatever, he's just like, we haven't dusted that for prints. Oh, like, good then. He starts drinking. <laughs> like, yeah, stop touching things. <laughs> and that's that, that was definitely the core of the satire, I think. Okay. Mm -hmm. All right. I can get behind that. Yeah. It comes out among the downstairs and a little bit among the upstairs that... Uh, Sir William McCordell was known for taking advantage of his position over female factory workers. And on more than one occasion, uh, either sacked the woman that carried his child or gave the child up for adoption, except he just sent them to an orphanage. Eventually, we managed to piece together that the servant, Parks, who had said he grew up in an orphanage, is one of William McCordell's bastard children. And we kind of figure out that he stabbed Sir McCordell, Sir William. But um, that's not what killed him. The stabbing is not what killed him. He was poisoned. Um, the Sir, thank you. The maid that Parks had taken a fancy to uh, manages to put all the pieces together that Mrs. Wilson, who works downstairs, and essentially runs the household and her sister and Mrs. Croft, who is the cook and coincidentally Mrs. Wilson's sister were both factory girls and both had children by Sir William and Mrs. Croft kept her baby 
it died of scarlet fever. Um, Mrs. Wilson gave up her baby and he came back as Parks. Before Parks could kill Sir William, Mrs. Wilson got in the way and made sure that the poison took care of everything. And in the end, nobody's really the wiser. It's basically like these three people know what happened and that's it. Mm-hmm. Um, what did you guys think of this movie? Uh, Josh, I don't think liked it very much. So it, on one hand, if I had seen this as a play in a theatrical sense, I would have absolutely loved it. The pacing was very traditional theater. Uh, the shots they chose to take were all very much from a set piece perspective. There were some close-ups, but you know, they also had everyone was speaking in these hushed tones. So I could, we had to have the captions on because I couldn't understand half of what was going on because everyone was hushed whispers, which again, achieved the feel of English countryside in the 30s, but made it very difficult to watch. So as a film, I really didn't like it. Uh Like, I I think as a theatrical piece, as a story even, it was really well done, but the doing it as a movie was not... Yeah, the the technical aspects let you down. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, honestly, I think the pacing was... I personally liked it because the pacing was different than what Mm -hmm. you expect for those films. I mean, the murder didn't really occur until like what? Easily. Three quarters of the way through. Yeah. Yeah. We were the majority of the way through the movie and then someone died. I was like, how long is it going to take? Well, and I will know they did build up potential motive for the better part of what? 10, 15 members Mm -hmm. of the household. Yeah. And my favorite part is they built up all of their understanding that it was likely to be someone from downstairs and then the inspector, you know, they get to the end of it and is, oh, well, are you going to need to speak to any of the servants? No, no, we just want to speak to important people who might actually have motive to do this. Right. Like, and then it turned out to be technically like to be servants anyway. So, <laughs> yeah, right? Always the servants, always the butler. So, Except not in this case, but. You know. So, yeah. No, I it's like, never the I butler like that does it, it's always the valet. Right. <laughs> but they even gave everyone character development, which was nice. Like, even the butler, it's, oh, well, he. You know, he was, he felt patriotic, but he felt, you know, bad about his, himself because he never went to fight. He dodged yep. the army, effectively. So, he was a conscientious objector. So he went to jail. Exactly. And, but then, yeah, and then he became an, an alcoholic as a butler to deal with it because he was so English, he just repressed it. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I, I liked this movie a lot. Um, it kind of reminded me of the movie Clue. Uh, which is definitely a much more slapstick version of this type of story. But I mean, Mm -hmm. I love Agatha Christie. I love uh, like murder films and mysteries like this. So I just think overall it was really tight and really well done. Um, Mm. I agree. Like definitely there was a lot of whispering that I felt was kind of unnecessary. Uh, So I think that's where like, if we had seen it in a theater, it probably would have been a little bit better, but Honestly, this this movie does a lot of really interesting things. They give you a really interesting story. Um, the sets, like, can we just talk about that, like, country oh, home God. that is a fucking castle? Mm-hmm. Right? How many fucking bedrooms do they have? I'm Easily over 100. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Like, there's, like, 30 people in this house alone, and then they're just like, oh, we can fit this many people easily. Everyone yeah. has their own bedroom. And I'm like... To be a member of the English nobility back when that was, you know, 
Actually, even now, though less now, but still. Yeah, less yeah. less so for sure. But like the um, the early twentieth century, like to, up until about the nineteen fifties, in English nobility mm. is a very fascinating character study. Uh, there's mm. a reason why Jeffrey Archer has like made a career writing books about it, and I bought oh. most of them. <laughs> He's my favorite author. My favorite fiction author. Author. He's great. Um, uh, yeah, like so much work went into this film that you can see and, and the story effectively holds it all up because sometimes you get a film that looks gorgeous, but you mm. feel let down by character or by the performance. Yeah. Um, it just, it holds up in so many ways. <laughs> I will say doing an effectively authentic period piece in 2001 uh, just going a very classical. I think maybe that's why it felt more theatrical to me. It's because they used old-fashioned props uh, and you know costuming and all that sort of oh, stuff. Yeah. They were very you know true to source material, and mm -hmm. I think that's part of why the pacing I wasn't the hugest fan of in film because pacing for that kind of story has to be deliberately slow because it's kind of emphasizing just that mundanity and that normalcy mm -hmm. of that way of living. Oh, for sure. And you know what? Honestly, I can't get enough. Like it's. What contributes to all what Josh was saying was the shots. And this is coming from my film background, right? <laughs> that it seems so theatrical, you know? I felt like I was watching, like, almost a play. Even that last shot where, first of all, also, as a side note, I also loved how the ending didn't, like, nothing got really resolved. Nothing was resolved. Yeah, like, the audience was like, It was a cool theme in this year's nominees. <laughs> But that, that was totally the style. That's what they were going for. And yep. the, the ending shot where you can see, you know, um, oh, God, what's her, the wife's name? The one that... The, the Lady bitch Sylvia. That the dog. Yeah, Sylvia. Fucker, the bitch the that kicked the dog. <laughs> They're so mean to that dog. I know. Like, nobody... He is a little bastard, but, like, you give I... him some good training and he's fine. He just has a shitty owner. <laughs> Just vented feelings. They can't kick the old man, so they kick his dog instead. I, to be fair, yes, correct. Yeah. But no, like honestly, I love the ending shot, and it contributes to that theatrical feel. The lighting really contributes to that theatrical feel, and just that ending shot, I loved. I think that really put a nice bow on the film. I'll say I liked it a lot more than in the bedroom, and in the bedroom had the same kind of pacing feel almost without being a murder mystery a little bit it, it also had the same feeling of attempted realism i mean we'll get there when we get there but like yeah. it's very similar core feeling to this style of story i'd say exactly. yeah yeah it's working really hard to be authentic rather than fantastic and i i gosford park definitely does that for me it feels very reminiscent of like films that I'm literally watching now. Like it it felt like it could have been made in 1958 and it would have mm -hmm. felt as good. Uh, which I think, first of all, speaks to the quality of behind the camera, because uh -huh. uh, I mean, we talked briefly about uh, the setting, but like the costumes make a huge difference. The props make a huge difference. Um, oh, well, it felt the, very natural for what you would have gotten inside one of those houses, which is a really hard effect mm -hmm. to achieve. Well, even yeah. the sound, remember that we, Josh, when we were watching it together, um, basically I made a comment about how when they're 
celebrity, the little house celebrity was playing the piano and all that. The audio I noticed was very different from what I was hearing prior, right? His, it almost sounded like I was hearing a recording from something of the 1950s, 30s, whatever. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Like it didn't, it had that kind of tinny sound. Is that the right descriptor? And, well, and uh, as you moved through the different groups yeah. that were listening, the, the quality of the sound changed too. So it felt mm -hmm. very genuine felt like a different spot in the room. And I also was noting that, yeah, like they used modern recording techniques for the time, but they were definitely aiming to achieve, like th th these were all very deliberate sound choices, mm -hmm. which is, I think, quite nice. And uh, I cannot say enough about the acting in this film. Like there was not a single character that I was like, eh, they could have done without. Like even Dorothy who does almost nothing, but she was like critical. It was so weird to me how every single character had a motive to kill Sir William. Like every, right. did not matter if they had never encountered him before in their lives. They, they could have had a motive. And I really liked that they fleshed it all out, um, which is why I was so disappointed that there's like no ending. It's all just like everyone goes back to their lives. So it like uh, Sir Rupert, Sir Rupert, I think that's who it was. I don't know. There was someone who was trying to court Isabel. He doesn't, mm -hmm. he doesn't get, no, 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 not the, um, not Nesbitt, um, who is the one that's like getting money from Isabel. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Lord Rupert, who like genuinely loves Isabel, their, their whole thing is unresolved. Mm -hmm. Like the film literally ends with them having a fight. Mm-hmm. And I, I want to see more. I actually wrote in my notes, um, I would love to watch like a full season of like 13 episodes of this because you could do so much with these characters. Well, it's it, Downton Abbey is what it is. That's yes. probably a part yeah. of it, and right? Back to your original clue comment too. My first thought, as soon as I saw those opening shots, I was like, ah, it's going to be the butler with a knife in the library. And I was like, no, I was wrong. It was the head maid in the library with the poison. It was the house manager. Or house manager, sorry. Yeah. So, in your terms, right. <laughs> I am no member of the English aristocracy and I have no desire to be. Like Haley, she gets it's valet. Not valet. Well, no, the word is actually valet, but because they're British, they pronounce it valid. That always drives me crazy. It's a French word. Oh, it's a French idea. It is. Oh, well, they just want to be different. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I was not expecting Henry Denton's turn. I didn't even mention this in the summary that I gave. So Henry Denton ostensibly appears to be... Um, Weissman, the Hollywood producer, he's like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm Mr. Weissman's valet. As it turns out, he's actually an actor researching a role for this Charlie Chan film, but also he's just like a fuck boy, which is not he an exaggeration. He, he doesn't necessarily fuck everyone, but he is looking to get his dick wet at every turn. Mm -hmm. Like he, Weissman asked him, will I see you later tonight? And he's like, no. But clearly this is like a long-standing thing that they have between the two of them. He mm -hmm. sneaks his way into Lady Sylvia's room. He assaults Mary, which I feel very bad for Mary because like, what the hell are you it's doing, dude? And like, it was a very genuine response that you could have expected at the time, which is, sorry, but you're a housemaid and you're going to have to just accept that that's going to happen sometimes and grow some thicker skin. And I was like, wow. Which is, 
That's all. Yeah, we're gonna leave that one. Yeah. Yeah. But just I will say good for Sylvia for after the murder <laughs> and he tries to get into the bedroom again and she's just like, just wait here for a second. And then he just Elsie. You're talking about Elsie. Elsie, sorry. Which yeah, okay. Another thing I didn't get to put in the summary. They're in the middle of a fancy dinner. People are yeah. ganging up on Sir William and then Elsie, the maid who, oh, yeah. as it turns out, is having a sexual relationship with Sir William, defends him by calling him Bill, and everyone's like, "Welp." So nope. she's convinced she's going to get fired, and but then the murder happens, so she can't actually leave. So she's like trapped in her room, basically. Yeah. Also, there was a murder. <laughs> like, yeah, right. So much happens in this film. I, well, just uh, imagine, Kate. Just take a second and imagine if you were working somewhere, probably for a long time then you get fired because of a sexual like office romance or like say you're a boss and then a murder happened so the cops are like yeah you just got fired but you can't leave actually funny note so the reason she was getting fired was not because she was having an affair with him she got fired because she spoke out of turn and that's more important to the english yeah. you can have affairs with whoever you want as long yeah. as you don't call it a ruckus you don't make a fuss and your partner is just blase about it stiff up her lip Exactly, but you speak out of turn. You violate. And the she called contract. him Bill. Exactly. How dare she? Yeah. But, but yeah, just those two things. It's all right. You're gone. You you no longer fit into society. But I'm just saying that you're missing a point. How awkward would it be? <laughs> oh, so awkward. no, no. When you get when you get fired and you have to stay at your workplace, right. you have to like, yep. continue working. With your dead employer that you were sleeping with? Yeah, that would be a little awkward. Um, I do, after a year of uh, COVID, I do feel for Elsie with the, like, I've read all of my magazines. Please give me anything to read. Because at least now we have, like, Netflix. Yeah. And, like, video games and stuff like that. No, this poor woman had two magazines. (laughs) Right? Not even, like, a full book. She had two magazines. Oh my gosh. And she said she read them twice, and I'm like, how long did it take you to get through these magazines? I mean, back then, you would have read what you had access to. And if you don't know, like, if you're not allowed to go to the part of the house where the books are, you're SOL because you just gotta, like, you would have magazines because you'd order things out of them. You didn't have the internet, right? Yeah. No, no, no. I understand that. But, and you know what? It really isn't that different. Like, who, who hasn't been stuck at a doctor's office for longer than they thought they did? And then there's, like, those awkward magazines mm-hmm. that nobody wants to read. Suddenly, it's the most interesting thing in the world. Like, ooh, mm-hmm. I love these deals on staplers. I, <laughs> I weirdly... Sorry. Okay. Also, for your listeners, uh, we have a puppy who is apparently just really upset that we're not paying attention to him. We have special guest, Gibson. <laughs> yeah. So he's an adorable little corgi and also a very large butt. Yeah, he is. He's got a corgi butt. What do you expect? Mm-hmm. Personality and physically. Yes. I just don't know how much of the joke through. So you can either cut this whole little speech out or I'll I'll decide. It just depends on what it sounds like. So no big deal. In run time. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Yeah. The, it's a great movie. Gosford Park is a great movie. Um, mm-hmm. definitely worth the watch. Uh, that it, it gets a gold star in my book. I'm going to come back to it a few times, I think. That's fair. Yeah. It, was, it was superbly well done. It was. It was amazing. Now let's get the really crappy one out of the way in the bedroom. <laughs> oh, I thought... Mirror? You didn't like Mirror? 
It's very funny that you started with let's get the crappy one out of the way. And I was about to say Moulin Rouge. Don't you start, girl. (laughs) Okay, we'll get into that. that (laughs) In the Bedroom is a independent crime drama released November 23rd, 2001. Produced by Todd Field, Ross Katz, and Graham Leader. Directed by Todd Field. Screenplay by Todd Field and Robert Feistinger. And it was based on the book Killings by Andre Dubout. Cinematography by Antonio Calvace. Edited by Frank Reynolds. Music by Thomas Newman. It runs 131 minutes. It stars Sissy Spacek, Tom Wilkinson, Nick Stahl, uh, Marissa Tomei, William, William Mapother, Celia Weston, William Wise, and Justin, Justin Ashforth. God, I could not get my mouth around that one. Right? Justin Ashforth. It was nominated for Best Actor for Wilkinson, Best Actress for Spacek, and Best Supporting Actress for Tomei, and Best Adapted Screenplay. Uh, it won none of them. So In the Bedroom is the story of a somewhat idyllic main town where a husband and wife and their late teenage, early adult son are getting to know his girlfriend uh, who has two kids and an ex that is a bit of a problem. One day, Frank returns from Natalie's house uh, with a black eye and his dad, Matt, is patching him up. His mother, Ruth, is beside herself trying to convince the two men that they need to call the police, that really her son should not be assaulted just because he's spending time with his girlfriend. A few days later, um, Frank is dealing with an interview for school when he gets a phone call from one of Natalie's children. He rushes over to Natalie's house, finds the house just destroyed, smashed. Um, There's just stuff everywhere. Natalie keeps saying, well, he didn't hit me, which doesn't make anything better, but... What is charming? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, Frank says, we have to call the police at this point. Like, you can't continue living through this. This is not fair. Um, Richard, the ex-husband, returns. Frank convinces Natalie to go upstairs with the boys. There is an altercation between Frank and Richard, and Richard shoots Frank. Um, Then we go through the funeral scene, and we start to see Matt and Ruth grieving, um, attempting to heal in their own ways. Um, They go to a cabin with some friends, um, see if that helps them relax. They eventually go to Richard's bail hearing where he is released on bail because the judge deems that he is not a risk because Natalie doesn't have a boyfriend right now and Natalie didn't actually see the gun go off. She just heard it. So that in theory would mean that the whole situation is being downgraded from murder to manslaughter, which is a real slap in the face to Ruth and Matt. We follow them over the course of the summer. Um, healing's hard. I'm, I'm not going to try to sum it all up here, but they, they give us a lot of really interesting vignettes. When finally Willis, one of Matt's oldest friends, says, do you remember that woman about seven years ago who threw her husband off the river or threw her husband in the river with uh, cement shoes? 
Yeah. Well, she's working at Sears now. Oh, so maybe you could get out. The two of them hatch a plan and Matt finds Richard in the small area that he's working in, in the dive bar and um, effectively kidnaps him at gunpoint, takes him out to Willis's cabin and shoots him. Matt and Willis uh, bury the body and Matt drives home and the film closes with Ruth asking Matt if he went through with it and then making him breakfast. Um, I'm interested that you didn't like this movie, Kristen, because I loved it. I, okay, I will say this, is that I liked what they were trying to do. I think they were successful at what they were trying to do, but my own personal biases of just, like, personal taste, I should say, not mm-hmm. biases, mm-hmm. kind of got in the way of it. I liked, you know, I like that it attempted something you don't really see much, because you always see these movies that are based on, like, you know, I woman in trouble, you know, you have the guy with a hero complex who tries to save the world, and then it's like, or save the girl, not the world. Could be the world. Save the cheerleader, save the world. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, it tries, you know. (laughs) But it focuses on them. Like, that. that's the protagonist. So it it took it into an interesting direction where, Mm -hmm. and Josh and I were also talking about this, where you never really see films too much where they focus on the survivors of a tragedy and just simply the day-to-day life of trying to cope with that. I really loved seeing that. And I really loved the ending where, um, what's the word? It's not covering me. Um, Just like very dark kind of ending where it's realistic. Like, you know, the dad made the choice. Somber. I think there's an actual word I'm not freaking remembering right now. I, I will bring up um, at this point, this was very much a sub-theme throughout most of the nom, if not all of the nominees this year, was dealing with the fallout of someone else's dumb decision. Yeah, what happened in 2000? <laughs> <laughs> Did you really just say what happened in 2001? <laughs> finish the thought. It's fine. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> I didn't think about it in that context of the film. I was thinking yeah, about it. Kristen. <laughs> to be fair, to be fair to you, Kristen, the films came out in 2001. They were filmed in like 1999, 2000. Right. <laughs> what happened in 2001? Shut up, we're cutting that out. Oh no, I'm fucking not. <laughs> It's just like the gator father, okay? I have to have neuroses. The bear self burn. (laughs) (laughs) I was thinking, like, you know, like, well, just the whole idea of, like, just lovers dying. Yes. A lot of very similar themes. I I understand what you were saying. I agree. (laughs) And then I'm like, not what I meant. Yeah, what? No, no, but but again, these these films were filmed in 2000 and 1999 and earlier. And they were just released in 2001. So what was exactly, it in the yeah. collective consciousness that we were feeling unfulfilled and um, left behind by well, someone we else's decisions? Thank, well, you know what? Thank you for rephrasing that so much better than I was going to be able to. Because <laughs> that's what I was getting at, is that there was just so much dark. And, you know, it makes a good film. Like, I will say it that. Does. It does. Yeah. It's a nice, refreshing take. And it's more realistic take and it makes the characters more relatable because I'll 
say that like you know what i think we all have those loved ones that if they were murdered we'd at least have the same thoughts as the dad did if not go through with it there, there are i agree with you there are people in this world that i would burn the world down for yeah i would absolutely do it and cool. i would suffer every consequence because that's what would help me heal yeah, it's like you, would, you might even be the kind of person who would do it and then turn yourself into the police. But we all have I am that 100% kind of that person. I'm too honest yeah. for my own good. We all have at least one person who would help us not only carry out the murder, but know the best way to hide the body and prevent any evidence from getting out. No, the point being is that, to your point, Haley, yes, I see. I like how the characters are relatable. And that's mm-hmm. why I like those kind of films, is that you want to be able to relate to characters. Let's face it, we can't always relate to the hero. And there's a whole specific, like that whole specific genre of, you know, the anti-hero where they're not trying to make that perfect person, but at the end, either do the right thing, or maybe they don't do the right thing, but they still make them. So on to that point, I'm going to say something I thought from the moment I saw the first shot, this film was so Miramax, it hurts. Yes. Yes. I grew up on Kevin Smith films. Like Dogma is one of my favorite movies of all time. And I really like, as soon as I saw the first shot, I was like, all right, I don't know what we're in for, but it's going to be, it's going to be weird. And it's going to be very thorough. The music and the shots were very, very interesting to me. Um, because when the film first starts, it's like, it's pretty idyllic. Like you don't, you don't feel like there's a lot of foreshadowing happening. It, it really eases well, you. Into everything. They don't try and make the set pretty. They just make it look real it's just real um and and the music is just very dichotomous with what you're seeing um so that is a it's like what what is what is this what is happening here um and then you get these beautiful sweeping shots of maine and um uh you get a really good look at what the house is and things like that um i will say this film weirdly reminded me of a perfect storm and I, I think it's just the main fishing thing that reminded me of it because that's like the central part of um, the perfect storm. But it it was really beautiful, honestly. Like just watching this film was a treat because it it's gorgeous. Whoever whoever was the cinematographer, let me read my notes back. Uh, Antonio Calvace, like just has a real mm-hmm. eye for what was going on there. Yeah. You know, and I'll say that, like, the cinematography was beautiful, the lighting, the feel. Again, I think that's my own personal biases, where just that pacing. Mm-hmm. Ironically, I liked that kind of, like, I, I likened it to Gosford Park a little mm-hmm. bit in terms of how they structured the story a little bit. How it was slower pacing, it made you chew over what you were seeing. Lot of information to absorb. Um, so it's interesting that you're right, like, I liked Gosford Park did not care for how it was done. And yeah, like I, I would I, I would say stylistically it was yeah. not my favorite of these movies. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's I don't know. I think it was just I loved the concept of it and maybe that's why I got my hopes up. I made that like fatal error that some viewers make for, when excited and you got your hopes up for in the bedroom? Yeah, for in the bedroom. Like you get your hopes up, you think this is going to be a cool idea, especially when I kind of saw the direction they were going, like focusing on the parents. I'm like, oh, okay, cool. Yeah. Um, maybe I got myself, I don't know, what I expected was not quite what I expected. 
And I don't know if that's the fault of the team that made the film or if it mm-hmm. was on me as a viewer, right? I, one of the things I have learned about myself doing this podcast and especially like watching the movies for it is uh, like many millennials, I rarely will just watch a movie. I tend to like fidget and play with my phone or like you guys saw me while we were watching Elotera. I started crocheting at one point. Like I'm always doing something else. Um, uh-huh. And for me, the mark of a movie that's got my attention is I don't do anything else. And that's what happened to me within the bedroom. Um, I had I had like a couple 10 minute moments where I was like, okay, I'm going to do something else because it's like lost me. But in general, I... I, I period Sorry. i started to break out at because i was like they had these natural lulls in the story where it was like you yeah. know nothing's happening for the next little bit yeah and that's kind of on purpose where it's just anyway i'll shut up no 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 i, I that's that's very helpful because that's exactly what i was going to say too and and the majority of the movie i sat there and i just watched the movie and i didn't do anything else and um I, I definitely was worried that they were just going to give us vignettes and we weren't really going to see any kind of like healing or resolution in a way. So I like that we got the resolution in the sense that they killed the, um, they killed the man that killed their son, but they're not healed. They don't feel better. Um, this is not the end of the story. They're, they're kind of like leaving us hanging and I, I liked it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. To that point, what was Josh? Josh pointed out a really interesting thing in the film. I'll have to, you know, give credit where credit's due. I, unfortunately, like you, like I've never done that before. My... <laughs> rude. rude, very rude. <laughs> anyway, you're saying um, that you know after their son was killed, the dad put the bandaid on his finger, like he got you know clipped or bit by the lobster, and he got mm-hmm. was bleeding too. Bandied on, and, and then after the murder, at the very last killed, shot, you say, see, is him symbolically taking this band aid off of him, pretending that everything's okay, having finally gotten his revenge and going, Well, I still don't feel better, but at least that's the, yeah, that's yeah. the end of that, yeah, right? Like, I'm not bleeding anymore. No, I think the healing yeah. process might be able to start to begin, maybe, I don't yeah, know. yeah, so. totally. Um, also, I love the outrage on the best friend's face when he's like, that wasn't the plan. We were going to kill him deep in the woods, not on my front drop the front line. <laughs> I don't know. I just, I was cackling for five minutes where I was like, yep, that's a that good friend right there. He did. He's like, come on, man, do this where we don't have to get blood splatter on things. It's, it's nice when a serious film gives you that moment of levity and like lets you breathe. Um, I fully mm. was expecting when Willis came and took the bags, I was like, oh, they're actually just going to help him skip bail and make him leave. That's, oh, no, no, they're not. Never mind. <laughs> as much as possible so that he could crush him as much as he possibly could because okay. he wanted to be very thorough in the way he did that. And I was like, for the moment, he was like, get your bags. I was like, oh, he's fucking with him. Mm-hmm. Always fucking with him. So especially when he left the plane tickets and then had him drive in the other direction from the airport. Amtrak, like, they were train tickets train tickets in the end it was that's the thing he kept saying like oh yeah you're gonna get on a plane but the thing that he left behind was a train ticket yeah so many little signs like no he's gonna kill him i don't know how or where but he's gonna kill him so yeah the credit credits due on there i think they did a lot of really interesting stuff and what they were trying to set out to do for that film there were a lot of turns that we didn't expect as an audience and, and that's mm-hmm. good. That's what you kind of want to see. But, mm-hmm. you know, getting back 
backtracking a little bit, I'm interested to hear where you guys were talking about how you both had a couple moments in the movie where you lulled, right? Mm-hmm. You kind of start to lose interest. You start to crochet. The first major one for me was when he came home from work after they'd gone through that initial series of really painful vignettes following the funeral and it was when he came home and we just saw her smoking on the couch, not doing anything. I was like, we have a solid 10 minute intermission here where we're going to see her dealing with her grief by actively refusing to deal with it. Yep. So yep. there are, there are a couple of little moments like that. Um, I, I honestly can't think of them specifically. Um, but yeah, I think that was one when we were just like watching her watch things um, that would lose me a little bit. Um, the trial or the bail hearing and the aftermath of the bail fe- hearing just got really difficult to watch. So I walked away for different reasons on that one. Um, yeah, it was only like two or three moments where I was just like, okay, I, I'm mentally checking out for a second. It's weird because I also zoned out over the bail scene. Like we came back afterwards and I was like, wait, I missed something, didn't I? Like I did, my brain refused to focus on this and now I don't know what's going on. And it was like a big <laughs> freaking deal about what happened in the bail scene. Like... But that all to me that almost captures that sense of just overwhelming shutdown that they were trying to convey for the parents of just like you've been fighting like you just lost your son you've been fighting this uphill battle with everyone in your life and everything that's going on and then you're sitting at this hearing and you're just like wait what he's getting released mm-hmm. the fuck mm-hmm. and and I liked that it was an indictment on the American justice system without being oh. aggressive because they're there's plenty of movies about how the justice system is broken. Mm-hmm. That that like that point was not central to the plot of this movie. It was another thing that was part of this it was movie. Just taken as inherent in the film that this is the way the justice system works. So why are you surprised? Yeah. You know, and honestly, I I agree with you there. I really liked that about it. I. I think, like, like I keep on saying, like, I think they did a lot right. There's nothing wrong, like, in particular that I can point out. Um, but it's one of those, like, you know, you talk about how some movies just you lose focus on and mm-hmm. just they mm-hmm. don't draw you in. This one didn't just draw me in. I think it was something about the content, the pacing, the way they talked. Like, I don't know. It's weird. I was more drawn in at Grossford, Grossford Park. Gosford Park. I I do genuinely understand that, Kristen, because when I watched Terms of Endearment, which won the 1983 uh, Best Picture Oscar, I couldn't finish that movie. And it is extremely similar to In the Bedroom in that it is slow, it's plotting, it's character focused and character driven. Nothing happens in the story unless the characters are actively working on it. And um, I... (laughs) When I realized that I liked this movie, I was like, oh, no, I, because I have ripped apart movies that are like this. And I, I think what the difference that In the Bedroom did for me that it didn't do for other films was it it gave me a reason to care about the characters and they didn't and it wasn't like forced down my throat. Um, with Terms of Endearment, I didn't like that movie because the two main female characters are just obnoxious. They're just straight up right. mean to each other. So it's like, why do I want to watch this movie? Whereas In the Bedroom opens with a lot of very genuine love and care and family. 
Um, and that makes it interesting because I want to see more of this family. Whereas in terms of endearment, sure. I didn't, I didn't want to see them. For sure. No, it was so much more human and it was so relatable in a lot of ways. And but, but it's slow and it's plotting and you have to be ready to be patient for it. But you don't know that when the film starts. Sure. And actually, you know, what? I just had an epiphany. Yes. That made Love me those. think like this movie a lot more stylistically. It just hit me. Something that they did that I think is really clever. And I don't know why I didn't realize it before. I feel fucking stupid. You'll probably even realize this. They purposely cut out the scenes with violence until the father kills Richard. You never see him get beat yeah. up. You see them yeah. pull up. And you never see Which, the actual gunshot. Can I just say, there was no fucking reason to show us Frank's body. That that was upsetting and visceral. And I don't normally care about gore. I literally said to someone earlier today, Kill Bill is one of my comfort movies. But that was just awful. I almost, was. I, I was going to cry because it was just disgusting. And, and that's like, I know it's supposed to shock you. Right. And that's why they did at the end. They wanted the action of the father to kind of shock us, even when we kind of see it coming. Like you mm-hmm. say, he about putting uh, Richard or Rick, whatever his name is, um, on a plane, but then he lays down plane tickets. Like, it's all this whole drawn out or yeah. And then takes yeah. him away in an automobile. Yeah. Right. Like it's a whole fucking thing. And they want to shock the viewer. Right. And yeah. also the only like, then you also see the sun and it kind of creates this parallel, right? Between mm-hmm. that. But they, I think they just really want to draw that dramatic effect of the father shooting the son. Josh, are you getting a snack right now? I made sure to snack so that I wouldn't be messing up the recording. That's why I got feet of bread. You can pair it and chew Oh my exactly okay. We probably should redo the intro and explain to people, by the way, like a lot of this dialogue between Josh and I, we're a couple for anyone who hear viewers. They can hear it they can hear it now in at this part in the podcast. Like, <laughs> they heard it early on too. It was just a well, little bit less explicit. And I will say it's I it's relatively obvious because the two of you like clearly are coming from one sound. So mm. Yeah, that's fair. Um, um yeah, anything else you want to say about in the bedroom? No, I just, I feel stupid that I didn't make that connection earlier. I, should. I, I didn't mean, make I, that connection, so. I, I don't have much to add from this from a, from a film perspective or a story perspective. I did, I love Miramax films. Yeah. So this was not one of my favorites just because it was a really good list of movies this year. Like I yes. still think this is fourth on the list for me, but only by virtue of the other three above that are actually really enjoyable films or favorite films for me. So Mm -hmm. yeah, I I like uh, good year. This movie shot to uh, very high on my list very quickly, Mm -hmm. um, which was surprising to me. Uh, What film would you like to do next? We've got three to choose from. Oh, the three most, those are the meatiest ones. Right. They are. I say we leave to the end. Okay. Um, Okay. That's a whole beast in its own. How about we tackle Moulin Rouge? Yeah, you said <laughs> oh, that's so favorite. great. <laughs> Moulin Rouge is a jukebox musical romantic film. It was released May 9th, 2001. It was produced by Martin Brown, Baz Luhrmann, and Fred Barron. It was directed by Baz Luhrmann, story by Baz Luhrmann and Craig Pierce. 
Cinematography by Donald M. McAlpine. Edited by Jill Bilcock. Music by Craig Armstrong. It stars Nicole Kidman, Ewan McGregor, Jim Broadbent, Richard Roxburgh, John Leguizamo, Jack Komen, and Carolyn O'Connor. It was nominated for uh, Best Actress for Kidman, Best Art Direction, Best Cinematography, Best Costume Design, Editing, Makeup, and Sound. Uh, it won Art Direction and Costume Design, which is kind of not a surprise. <laughs> not at all. So Moulin Rouge is the story of a uh, 1899 bohemian or attempted bohemian who travels to Paris, accidentally gets himself involved in a acting troupe, falls in love with ostensibly a stripper come prostitute um, who is trying to become a real actress. And one of the ways that she's going to do that is convincing a wealthy duke to um, invest in the Moulin Rouge, the uh, cabaret nightclub that she currently works in. Unfortunately, because she has fallen in love with the writer as well, the two of them try to hide their love affair. They don't really work that hard at hiding it. Everybody knows. And the Duke eventually gets jealous. Christian and Satine struggle through their relationship. Satine goes back and forth on following uh, her heart and her true love and doing what is right for the Moulin Rouge, for the cabaret and for everybody else involved. Unbeknownst to most people, Satine is also fighting some kind of disease. It's not actually named, but she is, she's dying slowly. Oh, is it named? Please, Josh. Yes. It's consumption tuberculosis. Okay. No, consumption is not an actual disease. No. It's what we called things when we didn't know what it was. Yes, but it is generally inferred and expected that while they called it consumption due to lack of understanding, it was actually TB that was killing her. Yeah. Um, consumption could also be diabetes. I originally thought I it was syphilis, so... No, not syphilis. <laughs> but it's another lung disease, and it would be more common among prostitutes at the time. I'm sorry. It's, it's We're talking about 19th century France. It was mm -hmm. not uncommon. That's very true. Anyway, unbeknownst to uh, the majority of people involved in the film, Satine is slowly dying of consumption. Um, and the film culminates with her having to finally make a decision. Will she marry the Duke um, and, well, marry's the wrong word. Will she fuck the Duke and make him feel like she loves him? Or will she run away with Christian, someone she truly does love? She technically chooses the Duke because she wants to make everyone else at the Moulin Rouge happy. But then Christian bursts in at the... <laughs> Please correct me, Kristen. <laughs> She's trying to, well, yeah, she wants to be famous. She wants everyone to be happy. So she's doing what she thinks she has to. But ultimately she chooses the Duke. Because he'll kill Christian, Christian if she right. doesn't. Mm -hmm. Tells you how much attention I actually paid. <laughs> um, Christian bursts into the scene, quite literally, on stage at the height of the cabaret that they've been rehearsing and writing for months. Um, and he and Satine sing a song for each other and, and they're in love and it's wonderful. And then the Duke almost has a chance at killing both of them again. 
Um, but then the curtain closes and Satine succumbs to the tuberculosis and she Worst time ever. basically <laughs> dies in Christian's arms, <laughs> which is really upsetting. Um, and then Christian says he will write their love story so that no one will ever forget it. That's very pretty. Yeah. It is. I, I have to say, I did not know that um, the, wh- what is the phrase? Um, fucking. The greatest thing in life is to be loved and to love in return. Or, yeah, to love and be loved in return. I didn't, that is like the most basic white girl, like put it on a wall phrase. I did not realize it came from this movie. Yeah, it's. Don't worry, there's a lot of, I'll admit that, there's a lot of basic white girl content I, in there. As a basic white girl, I am not going to hate on it. Like, I <laughs> I love that kind of stuff, and I'm I'm not going to be that person who's like, there was no, there's, there's better things to do or anything like that. No, this is enjoyable. It's a fun film. It's got a lot of songs that people can sing along to. It's romance. Like, people love this. I will this. say, one major note. Ewan McGregor has pops, oh, man. Oh my god. Like, oh. I have always enjoyed Ewan McGregor in anything I have ever seen him in. The oh, man is an okay. absolute treasure. Let's all just take a uh, moment and to And the sassiest Obi-Wan. <laughs> but when I heard him sing the first time, I was like, oh damn! Mm-hmm. The dude can fucking sing. It, no, I totally agree. Ewan McGregor is just a friggin' oh. delight. It does not matter what I'm watching him in. I love him. Mm-hmm. Men Who Stare at Goats. That's one of my favorite roles of his. It's a stupid film. It is a very stupid film. But I love it. Oh, gosh. You never know You never know what to expect out of some actors. Like, all of a sudden, yes. like, just uh, finally that film that really displays their talent, like his singing, and you're like, fuck, like, Gerard Butler. I only saw him mm-hmm. in, like, really shitty rocoms. And or action films or action yep. films. Yep. But then I know I him as an action guy. Like him and Ben for the opera. Jesus Christ. That's I think, I'm pretty Superstar. sure he got some straight operatic training specifically for that role. Cause like he knew how to sing beforehand, but they, yep. he took it to a whole other level with that. And like Hugh Jackman's here. another great example of someone uh-huh. that you can see in very compartmentalized forms, but he is just an incredible actor. Like and Nicole Kidman also is another really good example uh-huh. of that because like, I really enjoyed watching her at the beginning of the film because she totally bought into the absurdity. She was mm-hmm. in it. Um, the spectacular, spectacular. Like, you can see oh, she's yeah. going ham the whole time. And it's great. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you can... Exactly. And then you can turn around and you can watch her in some of her other stuff. Like, the only movie that comes to mind is Australia, which is not a good example. It's a bad movie. But, like, she's very genuine and very committed in that movie. And it's a great thing to see. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wrote down why I think I don't like Moulin Rouge. Um, right. the first thing that really bothered me was the pacing. It's really, really frenetic for like the first, uh, half hour or so when you're like being introduced to the Moulin Rouge and to all your characters and things like that. And then you get into the, um, like we're hiding our romance away and then it gets into like the really deep romance and it slows down and it loses me there. I usually get lost in romance movies. That's just a me thing. Um, and then it never goes back to that absurdity, which I missed because I felt like 
you started me off at such this high pace and like huge energy and like weirdness. And then you took all the weirdness away uh, and it became just well, a straight up love story. My only counterpoint to that is I agree overall with the pacing comments, except for the Roxanne musical. Number. That oh. was going to be my that one thing was oh. that Roxanne is the only scene that I sat hey, down and was like, oh my God. Mm -hmm. It's that. So like the opening and Roxanne, those are my two parts of the movie that I liked. The rest of it, it just, I don't like um the lovers having to hide their love story um i don't like the duke the duke really really upsets me as a character and so it becomes hard for me to watch uh, yeah. i know but like in a way that i'm just like Ugh. um so yeah the, like there's just elements of this that i didn't like um something that it sometimes bothers me sometimes doesn't and just bothered me in this situation is the like subtle music references um, like when they start naming different songs and things like that. And I'm just like, okay, we get it. Like you, you know how to read a song catalog. That's, that's what it felt like to me. Um, well, sometimes it can be bringing, done really well. I just didn't feel it this time. They, they were also bringing in bits and references to songs earlier in, like it, it was meant to be this final climactic tie-in of all of their musical cues and artists yep. and all that stuff. So I get why they did it. I, I get what you mean, though, where yeah. for me, I loved it from a technical perspective as a musician and a writer, <clears throat> because it is not easy to layer all of those things and still make them sound good and clear mm -hmm. and get your point across uh, and to do it well with all of those layers is always really cool. Like that's yeah. that's excellent spectacle. I mean, yeah. I will caveat that I don't like musicals. I have never liked musicals. And I and I'm the same. So I think that's part of why I struggled with it. Because it's based on La Boheme, which is one of my less favorite operas. Actually, I don't really particularly like La Boheme, which is why I, I don't watch Rent, because it's La Boheme and I don't like it. And that's... And I have that, no idea what that is. Honestly, neither do I. I have it's heard these terms because, well... I'm aware it's an opera, but you know those were the, that was always the part of the you know theater history stuff I zoned out of was like we started talking about opera and I was like, got it, opera, all spectacle, no substance. I am bored already. And that's Moulin Rouge in a phrase. Character content generally, yes, I'll get I'll give you guys that okay. is that character development is very basic. That's not why I love this film. Yeah, tell me why I you love it. I, I want to love it. I love this film because it is the most amazing, like how they use color, lighting, the amount of work that got into the dances. They made the most of their medium. They honestly, and Josh and I got into this big debate about spectacle and you say spectacle almost like it's a bad thing. Well, it's because Haley and I have traditional theater training and stuff where we learn right? plot, character, thought, diction, music, spectacle. Spectacle stays at the bottom. Thanks, Barry. <laughs> Thank you. Into so the reason why I love Moulin Rouge is because we're talking about spectacle and how spectacle is at the bottom tier for theater, but it is completely different medium. And that's one of the biggest things that I take away when people tell me, hey, this was like, you know, kind of an example people say hey this is a movie based on the book the book is way better apples and oranges honey they do two completely different things 
film was born in spectacle. The idea like, hey, look in this moving picture. This moving picture now has sound. Look at the color. Isn't this cool? Look at the CGI that we can do. Even like Gosford Park is spectacle. Downton Abbey is spectacle. Like the whole thing is that it's a different kind of spectacle. And you're talking about how you didn't really like how it went from this frantic pacing um, to, you know, slowing down. Well, it's because the different types of spectacle serve different purposes. So the beginning when it's all frantic and you see the different ways that they slow down and they speed up film to meet their purposes, uh, but everything still is in time. It's edited beautifully, the choreography, the cinematography, the color, the lighting, it all comes together to create this incredibly frantic, dizzying, discombobulating feeling. And that's what they're trying to do in film is to bring that feeling to you. They want you to feel as insane and discombobulated and dizzied as say Ewan McGregor is when he first meets those four friends, you know? He, when the Argentinian falls through his ceiling. Right? I love that because it's they want you to feel what that character is feeling. And that's the strength of film in a way that theater, theater's strength is its immediacy, it's um, anchoring in reality. Um, film doesn't have that. It's never going to have it. So whenever mm -hmm. you have a film, like they, they wouldn't be able to do that film well. If they tried to make that film realistic with this story and setting, like it's set in the Moulin Rouge, which is, you know, obviously as many, many people should know or might know or do know, or maybe they don't know, is obviously a real place, right? And mm -hmm. it's known for its reputation for that kind of hectic manic energy. So of course, as you're being introduced into this world, the same as a character, you're going to get discombobulated. They want you to feel insane. But then as they move away, it's like, okay, you've been introduced. Now we're getting into the love story. They still maintain some of that spectacle, but the purpose of the spectacle begins to change. So now they're focusing on these people's, the dancing, the love story, the characters. So you're not going to need a lot of that crazy, dizzying film, right? Or cinematography. You don't need the canted angles and the insane editing. It's shown in different ways. And you can see that even from like the different colors that they would use. And the dress. The, the dresses, <laughs> honestly, I could point out so many different examples of where they use color so systematically. It is like a case study in how to do color in a film. And so while the story itself is very average, I think that's why it was nominated for so many things is because what they were trying to do, the feelings that they were supposed to impose onto the audience they did very, 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 very well. In my opinion, I, every time- It is art. Yeah, it's art mm -hmm. and it's trying to do something very, very specific, something different than theater. And so that's where the spectacle becomes important and it's integral to a film like that. I, I think what really the thing that bothered me about the change of pacing is that this film sets me up that it's going to be absurd. And then it very quickly loses the absurdity. And I love the absurd. I, I love when things are weird. I just felt like we went to a very strict love story very quickly. And, and that's what I didn't like about it. Yeah. And you know, maybe the jarring is supposed to be part of it. I, again, yeah. I kind of can see your point on that. But honestly, like answer me this. Do you think with that kind of manic energy that they had, do you think that you could really keep up with 
let alone a story arc, but just that kind of energy, like you do an hour or two hours of that, your audience is going to be exhausted. Yes. No, I, I agree with you. Like you, you can be frantic, um, mm-hmm. but you have, you have to let the audience breathe. And that's what that Roxanne um, scene is, is letting the audience breathe into this moment. It's heavy and it's full, but it's not... It, it, it's not as distracting and not as um, uh, overwhelming as like the final scene is. Mm-hmm. So, and you no, know, I, I agree with yeah. you. And I, yeah. I appreciate that we disagree because I love hearing what yeah. you see in it that I can't see. You know, and honestly, like, I also just really like films that are really tongue in cheek. So maybe that's also why I did like Gosford Park because they were a bit tongue in cheek. Is anywhere I get sass, you know me. Mm-hmm. I like sass. I'm dating this guy, mm-hmm. right? Like, he's home. Mm-hmm. Right? She's had to learn to keep up with my jerk ass. Right? Yeah. It's got to come from somewhere. But, like, even I love, like, how when that first, when they're first introducing the uh, play proposal to the Duke, right? And the Duke's like, in the end, should someone die? It's like, oh, that was the dorkiest like ever just looks at each other and you're kind of like, I'm like, poor foreshadow. It's so dorky, so tongue in cheek. And um, I really love the, like, I have to get this one out of the way because I fucking love it. Um, but when Harold Zimmer is talking to the Duke and trying to get him like saying that, oh, uh, Satine is, uh, she thinks of this like as like you're recording her as like her wedding night, like the play, like the, opening night's gonna be her wedding night and so he's dancing around like with like, flapping white sheets around and like wearing a white sheet and i'm like or the bald shit or the bald faced act two where the lovers are discovered <laughs> just Sorry. sewing your face with it all right i'm gonna yeah. shut up now because i've talked yeah. everyone's ear off that i've made it very clear about my feelings yeah show. yeah let's uh let's take a moment to talk about the music um because i i think that's a like that's an essential part to this film. Um, and just like the different styles of music that it pulled from. Um, I like a good, what have I done? What, what has happened to my computer here? My computer's fine. I just went to the wrong screen. Um, I, I really like how they take songs that people know uh, and they they turn them on their head and they make it sound entirely different. Like you don't realize that you're listening to, um, I don't know, Material Girl. You don't realize that it's Material Girl and like a virgin until they start actually saying the words. And it's like, oh, oh, right. Mm-hmm. That's what this song is. Um, I mean, I Roxanne is. Genre covers even more so when they are done in this over-the-top style. Like, I personally would say that I don't like the musical styling, but that's because I'm a kind of a pretentious dickhead when it comes to my music tastes. But at the same time, I can respect the showmanship of it, of the composition, of I, the, the layering I mentioned earlier with the way they do a bunch of things, uh, the blocking and timing of incredible the dance to the music always astounded me because I'm like, and then that's one of the things that I think is the strength of this as a film, as opposed to being an actual opera or play, because you cannot get that perfect level of synchronized choreography to upbeat music with those impactful shots for each of those moments. You can't do that with, with, with a play. So I think that is definitely one of 
the strongest parts of this film is the cinematography and blocking in combination with costuming to the music. Did you ever watch Across the Universe? Uh, yes, in high school, and I hated it because, one, I don't like musicals, and two, more importantly, uh, this came out while I was in high school, so, uh, yeah, I was the weird, awkward metalhead in high school when everyone was singing the Beatles again, so... I, I love your edition of, again, because I discovered the Beatles in junior high. And so I was like, ooh, they're making a movie that's like all Beatles music. I Across the Universe clearly was inspired by Moulin Rouge. Um, oh, I, absolutely. I, 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 both of them. Like, <laughs> you, would, you would love that film. Yeah, you and I can watch it on a girls' night, Kristen. Nice. Because uh, it's a love story. Aww. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Aww. Um. I do, I like, I like the ideas behind Moulin Rouge. I just felt discombobulated by the story and the pacing. But mm. I mean, I, I will, I will a hundred percent agree. Technically this film is incredible. Like what it, mm-hmm. what it was able to pull off is just mind boggling. Mm. Like just mind blowing. And that's why, and I completely get why somebody like yourself might not like it. It's not a movie for everyone. But know. it, and I, I think, again, a very personal thing is I am a, a bitter single person. So it's hard <laughs> for me to watch beautiful romance when I'm like, fuck that. Well, you know what? They didn't end up together in the end. It's so. true. I mean, it's hard true. I'm to watch like that, but only because it brings me back to the cringe I felt first reading Romeo and Juliet. Oh. You're going to do what? Another Baz Luhrmann film in. in uh, interestingly. Also, I realized that Australia is also a Baz Luhrmann film, so maybe I just don't like Baz Luhrmann. That might be it. Right? I, think, I think I've discovered my problem. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. All right. Uh, you guys ready to move on to A Beautiful Mind? Okay, this one I actually took notes for. Like, Fellowship, I started and then gave up because I was like, I know this film so bloody well. well I don't and really every... I, I'm hoping that with Fellowship, you and I got all our lore stuff out when we watched it. So that we don't. Uh, oh, yeah. That's going to be your guys' field. I'm going to be mostly silent during that one because you that's guys fine. are the... Uh, I'm the resident Lord, 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 yeah. Lord of the Rings nerd here. I mean, I'm not the yeah. nerdiest of all Lord of the Rings nerds. That's, but like, that's so fascinating. I'm the resident LOTR nerd in my house, too. Right? <laughs> oh my gosh, you have so much in common. Uh, for the record, listeners, I live alone. <laughs> so I am the resident everything nerd in my house. Let me get you a dog. No, right. I'm not allowed to have dogs. Dogs uh, hit Gibson. We'll just disguise him <clears throat> as a teddy bear or something and he'll pass. <laughs> You've seen that meme, right? right. <laughs> I loved a beautiful mind, so I'm I'm actually really looking right. forward to going over it. All right, Let's hey, do this do one. Your thing. <laughs> So, A Beautiful Mind is a biographical drama released December 13th, 2001, just sliding in under the qualifying dates. It was produced by Brian Grazer and Ron Howard, directed by Ron Howard, written by Akiva Goldsman, and it's based on the book A Beautiful Mind by Sylvia Nazar, uh, which is a biography of John Nash. Cinematography by Roger Deakins, edited by Daniel P. Hanley and Mike Hill, Music by James Horner. It runs uh, 136 minutes. It stars Russell Crowe, Ed Harris, Jennifer Connelly, Christopher Plummer, Paul Bettany, Adam Goldberg, 
Josh Lucas, Anthony Rapp, Jason Gray Stanford, Judd Hirsch, Austin Pendleton, Vivian Cardone, and Killian Christian and Daniel Coffinet Cream as the babies. I just, I wanted to include them because it's cute. Um, this film was nominated for Best Director, Best Actor for Crow, Best Supporting Actress for Connolly, Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Editing, Makeup, and Original Score. Uh, this is also the Best Picture winner. It also won Best Ooh. Director, Supporting Actress for Connolly, and Adapted Screenplay. Um, so I, I am going to have a trigger warning at the top of this episode, but I want to emphasize it again here. Uh, this film deals with uh, mental health, specifically schizophrenia. It can be very difficult to watch or to talk about. So, mm -hmm. hey, listeners, take care of yourselves. Don't listen to anything that upsets you. Mm -hmm. uh, a Beautiful Mind is the story of John Nash, a brilliant mathematician in the late 1940s, who goes to Princeton um, and isn't the best student, which is often what happens with people who are like incredibly brilliant. They're crappy at school. Uh, mm. Einstein is everyone's example. Um, and Nash really desperately wants to write a proof that is groundbreaking and is unusual. And so he spends the majority of his time at Princeton trying to find that proof and trying to find that notion that he wants to work on. Uh, he does eventually find it and is able to get a placement at Wheeler Labs, which is a top secret semi-military laboratory at another university. Which university is it at? I forget. Oh, Brown? Yeah. I think it's Brown. I don't even remember if they mentioned it. I mean, I'm once you're done with the actual summary, I would I wish to read my completely awful notes as my summary because mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I would uh, love to hear that. MIT, yeah. sorry, it's at MIT. MIT, right, yeah. like high-level shit. Princeton's high-level shit. Um, <laughs> um, so Nash gets to go to Wheeler Labs, and as part of that, he gets invited to the Pentagon to study um, an, an encrypted code, uh, and he basically solves the code in kind of what they... They equate it to being like he solves it overnight sort of thing, as you kind of see through the time lapse. Um, and then he is approached by a mysterious Department of Defense agent uh, named William Parcher, who tells him that he needs to, um, he's being hired essentially to decipher codes that are being transmitted through newspapers and magazines. And so when you look at the page, like when John looks at the page, he can find the code. So he, he begins working and that's his work every, every day. It starts to kind of take over his life because I mean, to be fair, being a code breaker is really cool. So mm -hmm. that, that becomes a thing that he wants to focus on. He does manage to take the time to uh, take one of his students out on a date, which I'm very upset that it was one of his students. To be fair, she asked him. So this was not a power imbalance thing. Um, and they do eventually get married, which is quite lovely. Um, yeah, <laughs> it's very, very idyllic. After they're married, John has a bit of a break with reality. He is convinced that he is being chased by Russians and is 
um, going to be killed because of his work with the top secret government uh, project. Unfortunately, that project does not exist. He is not being chased by Russians. Uh, he has schizophrenia and is committed to a men mental institution. And um, we're told that many of the characters we've encountered as an audience are not actually there and they are in fact hallucinations. So there's no William Parcher, there's no roommate Charles, there's no niece Marcy. Um, I didn't realize this in the film. He Nash is actually given a course of ins insulin shock therapy, which is uh, very harsh, but seemed to be effective at the time. Um, and he's on high level medications. I'm going to shelf the pharmaceutical conversation for a moment. Um, but he and his wife, Alicia, are frustrated by the side effects in a lot of ways. Um, he he's effectively comatose 90% of his day and he, he can't do the work that he wants to be able to do. He can't even help around the house effectively. Um, eventually, uh, John goes off his medications by his own choice and resumes code breaking in the, basically in the garage. He and Alicia go through a lot to try and deal with that. Um, there is an incident where he nearly leaves his baby in the bathtub with uh, no supervision. Alicia manages to save the baby, fortunately. While he's filling it. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Uh, then John just has another break. Um, Alicia calls uh, Dr. Rosen. John might go back to the hospital. He might not. John and Alicia managed to work out a, I'm going to work through this, please don't put me at the in the hospital type of arrangement. Um, part of that arrangement is the idea that maybe John could go back to Princeton and be around familiar things and things that are comforting to him. And the film follows John through the rest of his life as he's kind of the oddball of Princeton. He uh, has a couple more breaks, but he's getting a lot better. He can tell the difference between a hallucination and reality, but that doesn't necessarily mean he can control how he feels about it. Um, eventually students start to like figure out who he is and come to him with questions about proofs. Um, John starts to feel comfortable enough that he would like to start teaching. So he becomes a professor at Princeton. And in 1994, he is in fact awarded the Nobel prize in mathematics for his work in governing, dy governing dynamics. And the film ends with John acknowledging his demons, uh, but not engaging with them. John Nash is such a difficult character <laughs> to talk about because you can't, you can't talk about modern economic theory without talking about John Nash. And you can't talk about modern uh, mental health work without referencing John Nash, whether you know it or not. Um, mm -hmm. He just, his story is involved in a lot of different things. Uh, Josh, I would like to hear your summary of the film. So I will warn you, I take absolutely atrocious notes, but I absolutely... I went to university with you. I know how your notes are. Yep. Uh, so let's see, uh, from the top, who is Russell Crowe? Because up to this point, <laughs> I saw the name and I was like, you know, I always see his name and I see him supposed to be in things, but I can't remember anything he's ever been in. So I first noted, okay. So now I have really good questions to use as teasers for this episode. What happened in 2001 and who is Russell Crowe? 
Uh, my next note is Big Nerd America speech. Uh, reprints didn't. Yeah. Just yeah. because they do open the film with this super patriotic speech of you are this country's best and brightest and you are going to go forth and make solutions for America to be America. But, like, but they're mathematicians, okay. so they're like the most inherent nerds ever. I know, so it's this big nerdy patriot, patriotism speech and I'm like, I am so Canadian because I watch this and I feel this whole scene is so absurd. The idea yeah, like, why do we have this? your life and career and your life's um, work, America, I don't understand. If and I, maybe I'm Canadian. Yeah, if any of my American listeners could possibly enlighten us, like, is that an attitude that, like, was, existed for a long time? Does it still exist? Because as Canadians, we're patriotic, but we're more muted in our patriotism. We also recognize how inherently flawed our country is and started well, and have uh, some people have acknowledged yeah. that. Let's yeah. there there well, is just, an effort to acknowledge the okay. inherent okay. issues in our country. That. that is more fair. Um but anyways, so then John Nash, just because I knew I'd forget his name otherwise, and then Knight's Tale guy with the Paul Bettany afterwards, because he played. I like the that same that's character. where you know him from. No, I saw, well, that's the thing. He was playing the same character with the same walk and the same gait and the same voice. Probably being filmed around the same time. <laughs> exactly. Mm-hmm. So that's why I was like, oh, fuck yeah, who's it? Wait, that's Paul Bettany. Shit. It took me a second, too, because that's all I could think when I saw his face. I was like, ah, nice Also day, a huh? treasure. I love that guy. Uh, yeah, Paul Bettany's great. Mm-hmm. He, he has vision in the Marvel Universe, if anyone's trying to figure out why you know that name. Uh, then I've got Pigeons Loses a Go. Uh, which is yeah. there's, there's this big scene with him and who ends up being one of his closest long-term friends, but starts as kind of a mathematical rival. Well, uh, they both came there on a scholarship that, that is not normally split. That's what it was. So they have this big rivalry going and, you know, this, uh, this rival has been like from this point forward, puts out a bunch of work and Nash constantly dismisses it as derivative drivel um, Nash dismisses it and then does not release any of his own work. Exactly. So spends mm-hmm. years, but then eventually, okay, so we'll get there. Yep. Uh, yep. So fails with women. So there are some several scenes yes. in a bar where we see exactly how inept John Nash is with women. Uh, but, it's oh, just fluid exchange, right? I was say in quotations, fluid exchange. Ah. You know what? You <laughs> weren't that different. I was worse. I was worse. Don't even yeah, get me started. Uh, <laughs> then I have. Fuck you, Adam Smith, because pretty blonde, which is the summation of the scene where he discovers his new economic proof. Okay, <laughs> yeah, that's a simplification, but yes, I will buy it. <laughs> they, they, he's in the bar with his friends after showing how bad he is with women, and this blonde walks in with four friends, and then he has this like super epiphany, and all I can get is fuck you, jo- or fuck you, Adam Smith. Fuck you, Adam Smith. You I mean, also fuck you, Adam Smith. Adam, but I'm more correct, so ha. I'm like, oh, that's some mm-hmm. big math energy right there. Um, and then, and now life is good, but then government. Big math energy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so, Christ. Government, because that's when he starts having his big MIT moment. And I was like, ah, yeah. And he's like, who's the man? And I was like, oh, big tough words. And I will do a little conversation that Kristen and I had, and we'll follow, check in on it later. Uh, but talking about the lighting and use of props in this movie to infer his mental state, mm-hmm. this is the first scene where I looked and I went, 
those computers look so fucking fake. What was the special effects team thinking? And it wasn't until the second time we see him and we're starting to understand what's going on with him that I go, oh shit, that was a brilliant visual cue. It took me forever to get there. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm um, I just want to interrupt for a quick second. Was this the first time for both of you watching this movie or have you seen it before? Yeah. Oh, great. Um, yeah, don't answer for me. Don't fucking answer for me. Wow. We both know I'm incompetent. Just keep going. No, okay, uh, no, I just, I wanted to have that context. Yeah, I have watched it once, um, no, twice, twice before. See, I thought I had watched it until I realized about partway in, I was like, oh no, I was thinking of um, Sunshine, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, which came out around the same time and- Does not star Russell Crowe. Does not star, who is Russell Crowe? Uh, <laughs> who is Russell Crowe? Exactly. So I've got, but then government, class is poo poo. Uh, more government. Nuke's bad. Um, pretty student woos her with star math, which uh, goes to this. Hey, he'd win me over. Like, fuck yeah. Right? Like, he's like, I am absolutely terrible at this whole thing, but I'm just kind of following your cues. And he's being super awkward throughout the whole night. And then he takes her outside and starts like, he's like, name any, any image you want. And then starts drawing it for her in the stars because of his ridiculous pattern recognition. I was like, okay, you're awkward as fuck, but that was smooth. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, Again, not dissimilar to you, honey. Gets <laughs> married, moment. watches a guy die. Um, and I can't remember who he watched. Oh, no, that was the Russians, wasn't it? Yes, it was uh, when he was being chased. Right, and then, like, so they, the Russians, the Russians supposedly shoot at him. Big government tries to give him a gun. He's like, no, man, I don't shoot people. And then he ducks down, and they, like, pull off and trick the Russians into diving into a lake and dying. And he just watches that and goes home. <laughs> pretends like nothing happened. Has, uh, no, he does not pretend like nothing happened. Well, he has no, a meltdown. But, yes, but it takes him some time to have his meltdown. Uh, and then, let's see, bunch of paranoia. The Russians are coming a la Paul Revere. Um, <laughs> and then that's when it's, oh, all of this disparity is starting to make sense because they start, this is the point where they reveal he's schizophrenic and the government is a lie. And I just, from this point, I fell in love with the film because up to this point, I was like, this has just been a wild ride of what the fuck's going on. I was like, oh, Aww. they're just going right into all of the difficulties of mental illness for not only the person who is suffering from it, mm -hmm. because that's a whole burden on its own, but also for his partner, who's just been blindsided by this because mm -hmm. no one, like he had signs for years, but no one knew to watch for that. There was no mental health discussion at the time. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, like the fact that the movie starts in 1947 and he's approximately 18, 19 at that time. Mm -hmm. the, the, mental like was health was not a conversation. And like no. there's, there's also the possibility that he might've been on the autism spectrum because he has <laughs> difficulty in social situations. Like Absolutely. things that you and I now would be able to say, oh yeah, that, that person their brain chemistry is a little bit different, so we have to work with them in different ways. No, no, no. Everybody's exactly the same. Mm -hmm. Well, that's the thing. I think the, like, was that the being on the spectrum thing actually fab? Like, did people, mm -hmm. or was this just based off speculation? Of that, that, that's my, that's my speculation based on the character. Okay. I no, mean, that's fair because, like, even like the way that they set it up at the beginning, uh, like those social interactions, the close ups on the awkward faces. I was going to say, spoiler warning, I'm on the spectrum as well, so I definitely felt some of the mo those moments being like, oh, uh, now I know exactly that feeling. Oh. Right? Like, they, they definitely set it up, so I think we need to take that also kind of lightly, because we can't assume. Like, no, no, no. 
like any other film, right? You never know. No, no, I'm, I'm not assuming he was. I'm just saying, like, I feel those awkward social interactions because yeah. I've yeah. experienced many of them exactly like that. Yeah. It's like, mm, mm. cringy. Um, I'm not going to go on for too long about uh, the mental health treatment because yeah. I've, I've done that in other episodes on this podcast. Um, it, we don't need to traumatize ourselves too much more. No. Um, but I do want to say that, like, it is very much was very much a thing and does in some ways continue to be that the medication that helps people function in the society that we've built is also feels very stifling for those people and um, can really mute a lot of your behaviors. Uh, Josh, I don't know if you remember this, but when I was on my last antidepressants, I couldn't cry. I physically could not cry. I would watch very sad things and my antidepressants made it so I couldn't cry. Still happens. They're just better. Um, so I, I like that they included that and that that was part of the conversation. And I, it makes you understand why he doesn't want to be on his meds anymore because you don't feel like yourself when you're, when you have a medication that isn't working. Well, they actively show a scene where they're doing the insulin shock therapy and he's going into a seizure and his wife's just standing there watching him crying. She goes, this is the best medicine has to offer us at the time. And this is horrible. It's awful. Just awful. Um, I'm glad that we've moved past uh, physical violence on people who mm -hmm. need help. Mm -hmm. Right? Um, okay. I love Paul Bettany in this movie. <laughs> he is such a fun character because he's like the the perfect roommate. He's the, the fun, loosey-goosey, artsy to the studious mathematician. It reminded me of Kate. <laughs> That's yes, yes. He's Casey. If um, Casey knew who D. H. Lawrence was, fair. Um, I mean, he might. For all we know, he reads. That's true. Well, I mean, the, the roommate character is supposed to be perfect. And what I really like about the movie is that I don't know if you guys picked up on this again. And I feel like it's kind of self-explanatory, but really, it's supposed to just be either who he wants or wishes he could be, or just another part of himself. Both yes. his roommates. Yeah, Charles, and then Mr. Man in Black. And Parcher. The child, yeah, Parcher. They're all just extensions of himself or who he wants yes. to be. Or yeah, who, I noticed yeah. that too. And it's it's really good. Um, mm -hmm. It's very interesting to see him interact with them as the film goes on. And like when he says, um, I can't talk to you anymore. I'm going to choose not to talk to you. A very interesting strategy, and clearly it worked for him. Um, I, I This is a very good movie, but it's a very difficult movie. Um, and I actually, I saw the movie, and then I read the biography after the fact. Um, I don't remember much of it, because I think I was a little bit too young to be reading it. I was probably 13 or so. Um what I remember distinctly is actually about the math because I understood it the least. And I, I remember reading it and uh, basically the explanation that's given in the book is that like, um, what is it? It's governance. What is it called? Governing, uh, governing dynamics is a part of economic theory and game theory. So it's all about like win loss conditions, which is very fascinating. And, 
it, I like that they have the go scene at the very beginning and then they have it again near the end. I would have liked to see a lot more game happen it, throughout the movie because mm-hmm. I think that would have been an interesting perspective. But you don't it, like it wouldn't have added anything. You have more screen time too, right? Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> I think that's the other thought for something like that is you can show it symbolically, but to show it too many times will bore most viewers and take away from your available screen time. So yeah. Um, I, I don't feel like this movie did anything particularly incredible technically. Um, there were, there were a couple scenes like where he's breaking the code, um, that were like, those were cool. And it was kind of neat to like, see things get lifted off the page. And that one scene where he first starts with the magazines and like different magazines start lighting up. That was cool, but it was a pretty standard movie. Otherwise I didn't, I didn't feel like it was groundbreaking in any way whereas like in the bedroom at least had like really gorgeous shots to accompany everything i will say they definitely made the made the plot that 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 made the props and the costuming and everything and all the technical stuff they made it to serve what was already an extraordinary story Mm -hmm. and i don't i i feel like if they'd gone over the top with the special effects more than they had it would have actually detracted from yeah the story they were trying to tell as opposed to the moulin rouge where you could have told the story of the Moulin Rouge in 20 minutes if you wanted, but they drew it out to be this wonderful, spectacular, spectacular, and that was the whole purpose of it. Mm-hmm. Yes, I just did that. I know you did. <laughs> it's fine. It's appropriate. <laughs> it's exactly what you should be doing. Um, yeah. I. It's it's a good film. It's very emotional. It's, it's mm-hmm. hard to watch. It gets very hard to watch. Um, mm-hmm. But I like it. Well, you know what? Honestly, the reason why I, would, I honestly would have to say this is actually probably my favorite out of all of them. And yes, even more so than Moulin Rouge. Because again, I, Moulin Rouge's story is very average compared to yep. its what it does technically. And you're right. A Beautiful Mind is almost the exact opposite. Um, where it doesn't try and dazzle you with spectacle per se. First, like it mostly, its appeal comes from it's characters, right? Okay. And what I love what they did, it's the whole movie is a matter of perception. It's this whole commentary on perception and mental health. And for the first third, before we realize that John is schizophrenic and we are in the dark as John Nash. Yeah, right? we're, it's we're along for the ride. It's literally, almost literally being shot through his eyes, right? We have no idea that Charles or yeah, Charles is not real, right? Mm-hmm. So we, the viewer, kind of follow along. We assume everything that the John Nash, he assumes. And then as soon as we learn that we can no longer trust John Nash's perception, it switches to his wife. Yeah. And we follow and we learn with her. And that's a great way to build that kind of relationship yeah, with the, the characters. Yeah, the cinematography was really cool. Yeah, like it yes. immediately builds that relationship with the wife. You follow her along. As soon as John seems to make, like, kind of near the end, that last third, where he seems to accept and be like, please don't send me to the hospital, he starts going back to Princeton, finding a way to cope with his schizophrenia. Then we do start seeing it going back to John Nash. Because the whole point is obviously Mm -hmm. it's supposed to be based on John Nash's life. Mm -hmm. So I think it's really, really, really important what they did, where they did detract from John Nash's perception to his wife's, to his friend's perceptions uh-huh. and away from John Nash. Cause I think 
that's really obviously important. We already, again, touched on that where it's an important part of understanding mental illness. And and I think the nice thing about the way they do it is you don't feel that they're switching perspectives on you. Um, like after a couple mm-hmm. minutes, you kind of realize, oh, hang on, this is this is different than what we were looking at before. Um, but it's not like all of a sudden you're in someone else's POV. Like it's, it, it's, yeah, gentle. the shot, girl, shot from a very, very much the same perspective. And mm-hmm. it, it's all just like this mundane life. And I think that's a nice little sub theme you kind of see through, again, the nominees this year is just this juxtaposition between the mundane and the extraordinary. Cause you're getting yes. with the Lord of the Rings coming out mm-hmm. of this idyllic shire and into this world of magic and wizards with this, you're seeing this, you know, extraordinary mind in multiple circumstances juxtaposed would, by the Josh. Josh, would you call yeah. it a, a beautiful mind? <laughs> uh, Fuck, you I mean, I call it a pretty mind. I mean, I, I don't know if I'd go. It's so not far contagious, <laughs> Kristen. There's a reason why Josh and I are friends. It's true. We both have awful sense of humor. Uh, but like, what just, am I doing here? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I'm the straight man. I would um, never, I would never insult you with that. I was just going to say, yeah, you are. So, you know. <laughs> but like, yeah, you, you see that as kind of a common sub theme through it. So I think going back to that collective conscience thing, this like need mm-hmm. for escape mm-hmm. almost. Yes. Because even yeah. with the murder, the, the average person is not going to deal with a murder in their lives. Nope. So, but, you, but you're seeing all of these shots of this incredibly mundane idyllic lifestyle in Maine and bam, you got this horrible yet extraordinary story. And I, I think that holds over with the Moulin Rouge and even, you know, the murder in the English countryside. Yeah, Gosford this... Park. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I totally agree. I think yeah. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting thing that happened among these five films. I didn't hear what Josh said, so I'm curious what to listen. In 2001. <laughs> Um, but yeah, it's, it's very interesting that the collective unconsciousness for these five films was very, very similar. Um, yeah, I, I like a beautiful mind. Um, watching it once every 15 years is enough for me. (laughs) I have no interest in rewatching it. Like you said, uh, you know, quite a few times already. It It made me tear up and I am a tough nut to crack. Um, so, so the reason I asked you earlier, Josh, if you had seen it before was I was curious to hear your perspective on, um, like kind of realizing his disease and, and realizing that what you're seeing, seeing is coming from an unreliable narrator. Uh, I will say that it was wonderfully surprising because it put everything, because they foreshadowed that event and that reveal very thoroughly from the beginning of the film, all the way to his roommate throwing his desk out of the window to the way they shoot uh, Paul Bettany's character in that you never see him interact with anybody except John Nash. I don't think, like, mm-hmm. literally not even interacting, never in the same scene. It's not never like in you the see same him off shot. in the background. It's right? very sixth sense. Because yeah. he's at the bar. You see him walk out and say goodbye to John Nash before his other friends show up and start talking about the women. Yeah. You see that because he directs him to... Uh, this girl in the first shot, and he's in the same bar, but he's never in the same shot, mm-hmm. which is really cool. All of these little things, like I mentioned the surrealism with 
the use of props and like the unrealistic space age Star Trek style computers they had in this code yeah. hacking room that they'd special made just for him. All of these just too much things were like, as soon as you hit that reveal, you're like, every little thing that kind of bothered me or set me off going, what the hell's going on now makes absolute. And yeah. we actually we had a big conversation about the use of lighting mm -hmm. in that whenever you deal with things that are entirely in his mind, they make very notable Light. lighting changes. So yeah. when he's talking to the doctor the first time and he's got Paul Bettany's character off at the side and he's yelling at him, you know, this, this character, this roommate is well lit. He's crouched. He, he looks extra real. Mm -hmm. And then you shift to this shot where you're looking directly up at this doctor from his point of view and he's super dark and smudgy and he just looks a little bit less than real. Mm -hmm. And yeah. they do that a lot where anything that comes directly from his mind somehow looks extra real, super, yeah. super real. Uh, yep. Surreal, if you will, and <laughs> yeah, I know it took me a while to get there. Okay, surreal. <laughs> but all that aside, <laughs> so for me, that reveal was beautifully uh, done uh, from both a story and plot writing perspective as well as a technical one. So while you're saying. They didn't do anything extraordinary with the technical work. I agree, but it told the story so perfectly and led yeah. up so perfectly to the moment they wanted to show you that I love the cinematography mm -hmm. in this yes. easily as much as I liked what we watched in Fellowship. And and <laughs> not being extraordinary does not mean boring, does not mean simple. It just means, for me, it just means they didn't do anything new. They used the techniques to the absolute that they possibly could. Yeah. And, and and that's yeah, equally fine. commendable. Yeah. Yeah. Anything else you guys want to say about A Beautiful Mind? Other than the fact that you both think the other one has one? Oh, no, I don't. Yeah, you're pretty okay. Yeah. I don't think so. Pink wife. Oh, yeah. Oh, the dress. Yeah. Well, the wife. Are as succinct as mine are. What does that mean? <laughs> Going back to her color theory study. Yeah, I like honestly that's like kind of a recurring thing. I really like when films make really heavy use, like good use of color. I mm -hmm. think it's really interesting. And I just loved how uh, the wife, I think she's repeatedly shown like a bright pink or like bright red dress, and then his medication was bright pink or bright red. We okay. It's time. It's time for us to talk about The Lord of the Rings. The Fellowship of the Ring is an epic fantasy adventure film released December 19th, 2001. Also just sliding in under the wire. Produced by Barry M. Osborne, Peter Jackson, Fran Walsh, and Tim Sanders. Directed by Peter Jackson. Screenplay by Fran Walsh, Philippa Boynes, and Peter Jackson. Based on the novel by J.R.R. Tolkien. <laughs> Cinematography by Andrew Lesney, edited by John Gilbert, music by Howard Shore. The theatrical release runs 178 minutes. It stars Elijah Wood, Ian McKellen, Liv Tyler, Viggo Mortensen, Sean Astin, Kate Blanchett, John Rhys Davies, Billy Boyd, 
Dominic Monaghan, Orlando Bloom, Christopher Lee, Hugo Weaving, Sean Bean, Ian Holm, and Andy Serkis. It was nominated for Best Director, Best Supporting Actor for McKellen, Best Adapted Screenplay, Art Direction, Cinematography, Costume Design, Editing, Makeup, Original Score, Original Song for the song May It Be, Sound and Visual Effects. Uh, so if you're counting, that's 13 nominations for this film. It led the year in Great. nominations. It won Cinematography, Makeup, original score and visual effects. Damn straight it did. <laughs> so, so what's really great is that we had the benefit of watching this all together. We did. Yes, yes. It's the first time I've been able to watch a film in the same room as the people that I'm gonna talk to uh, about it. So it was it was nice. Yeah. I, <laughs> um, I said this, uh, I think before we started recording or early on, um, I think, I think, Josh and I got most of our uh, lore vomit out while we were watching the movie. So we'll, we'll try to keep the lore to a minimum. Because um, <laughs> Josh, you want to start a podcast with me that just talks about Lord of the Rings and nothing else? Because we could do that. No, I, 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 I will have several key things to say, I'm sure, that have yeah. to do with how much I absolutely love Peter Jackson's representation of these yes. books. That's all I'm going to lead with for now, and I'm just going to let you finish saying what you're saying. First. Kristen's legitimately yawning. What? You yawned as he was talking. Yeah, I, you just get used to that and start ignoring it. Your partner after a few years. Amazing. Alrighty. So I will be uh, as brief as I can be with this summary. Uh, Lord of the Rings, Fellowship of the Ring, which from now on I'm just going to refer to as Fellowship. Uh, follows the story of four fantasy creatures named hobbits. They are shorter than the average human and generally are not considered extraordinary, but uh, the uncle of one of them. So the four hobbits that we are going to talk about are Frodo, Sam, Merry, and Pippin. Frodo's uncle happens to have possession of a magic ring, which their wizard friend Gandalf realizes is an extremely dangerous ring of power. Uh, and was in fact crafted by the Dark Lord Sauron. So Gandalf entrusts Frodo with the task of getting the ring to a safe location, which at the start of the movie you think is going to be uh, basically the next town over, well, uh, in, into human territory, into man's territory. Um, and then it becomes getting it to uh, the territory of the elves and to uh, Rivendell. Frodo, Sam, Merry, and Pippin uh, kind of meet each other on the road, as it were, and they become a, a group of four traveling to get the ring somewhere secure. They go through quite a few adventures. There are uh, witch kings that come after them, and one of them, in fact, stabs Frodo at one point. Uh, they meet a ranger who is named Strider, uh, who somehow is friends with elves because this beautiful elf lady swoops in to try to save Frodo. Uh, the five of them eventually make their way to Rivendell, where a council is held to determine what they are going to do with this ring. The enemy is growing in power. If he, the ring falls into his hands, they will all be enslaved and darkness will rule Middle-earth. 
So we have representatives from all different walks of life in Middle-earth. We have Frodo the Hobbit, we have Elrond and Legolas Darwin. the Elves. No, I forgot Legolas's name. Oh, jeez. Um, we have Gandalf the Wizard, uh, who is not technically a human, as Josh reminded me multiple times. He's a Maiar, uh, it's different. We we have the race of men represented by Boromir of Where is he from? Fucking hell, where is he from? Gondor. That's the one. My, my brain yeah, is just very tired. Where is he from? And I was like, ah, oh, fuck, I know this too. <laughs> I just had that moment. Um, so the race of men is represented by Boromir, son of the steward of Gondor and Aragorn. Uh, who represents the rangers. And we have dwarves represented by Gimli, son of Gloin. Um, basically, all of the races feel that they should be the ones to carry the ring. They feel that they can do it better. Uh, it's determined that the ring needs to be taken to Mount Doom and destroyed in the fires that it was forged in. Everyone starts arguing, and Frodo steps up and says, I'll take the ring. I don't know how to get to Mordor, but I will take it. So, of course, his uh, three friends, Merry, Pippin, and Sam, have to come with him. Gandalf, obviously, is going to guide them. Aragorn pledges his sword, and not to be outdone, Boromir, Gimli, and Legolas all pledge their loyalty as well. So now we have... have my <laughs> so now we have our fellowship of nine people. They start to journey across the land and they run into a lot of different hardships. Um, Gandalf's, the head of Gandalf's order, Saruman, who had actually imprisoned Gandalf because he's now turned evil and allied with Sauron. Trust me, the first time you watch or read Lord of the Rings, you get Sauron and Saruman confused a lot. Yeah. Yeah. They are two different yeah. entities. Um. Saruman basically throws everything he can at them. He causes blizzards. He sends uh, basically crows to hound crows to hound them. Very good, Haley. Uh, crows to threaten them. Uh, and in the meantime, Saruman is building a army to rival the orc army of Saruman. He's building something called Urukai, which are uh, hybrids of goblins and orcs. And very fast, very dangerous. The Fellowship eventually decides they are going to attempt to travel through the mines of Moria. Um, if you can't go over the mountain and you can't go around it, you gotta go through it. Gimli's cousin uh, had mined in Moria, but uh, as the movie says, the dwarves dug too deep and they released an evil. Um, so the Fellowship makes its way into the mine. They get attacked by an octopus monster at the door. They manage to get inside and then have to defend themselves against orcs that are allied with the evil that the dwarves found in Moria. Big, beautiful, climactic battle, and Gandalf falls. He is dragged down into the shadow with the Balrog, the evil. No one really is given time to rest. They have to keep moving. They make their way to the wood of Lothlorien, which is the land of the elvish queen Galadriel. She gifts them all um, gifts that are specific to 
their needs and that will help them on their journey. And everyone makes their way off. Um, Frodo does offer the ring to Galadriel, but she manages to refuse the power. So the eight members of the fellowship begin making their way on boats through the rivers. Um, they land at a shore for the evening and then will make their way across the lake uh, under the cover of darkness. Boromir is tortured by the power that the ring holds and eventually uh, attacks Frodo trying to get it. Um, fortunately, he does immediately see the error of his waves and is guilty and apologetic. But just as Frodo manages to get away from Boromir, the Orakai that Saruman sent are upon the group. Um, another big climactic battle scene, Boromir unfortunately is killed by not one, not two, but three arrows. It takes three arrows to take that man down. And none of them to the knee. I hate you. <laughs> This is why I wanted us to sit next to each other because I knew because you wanted to be able to hit him when he annoyed you. <laughs> I can't do that for in different rooms recording. Um, Kim, Mary faster. Oh, Kim, so so sad. Sorry. <laughs> Mary and Pippin are uh, captured by the Urukai. Frodo and Sam manage to get to the other side of the lake. Um, Sam is determined he's going with Frodo. Frodo's determined he's going alone, and then Sam gets his way in the end. Of course, Sam's Frodo. Because Sam's a real hero. It's true. So our fellowship is left to three individuals. We have Legolas the elf, Gimli the dwarf, and Aragorn the man. Um, Aragorn, who we have learned through the course of the movie, is in fact the rightful king of Gondor. And the three of them decide that they are going to hunt the orc. They say they're going to hunt the orc. It's actually Urukai. Um, in order to get Merry and Pippin back, because that is a thing that they can do to help Frodo on his mission. And that is where the film ends. Oh, so um, my story <clears throat> that I refused to tell when we were watching the movie was, uh, so obviously this movie came out in 2001. I think I first watched it somewhere in 2003, 2004, and then I read the books and then I wanted to watch it again with my family. And my dad was like, okay, yeah. Like he's vaguely familiar with the story. He'd heard of it before, hadn't, didn't really know it. So we watch the whole almost three hour movie. We get to the final scene when Frodo turns to Sam and says, Sam, I'm glad you're with me. And then the scene fades to black. And my dad turns to me and he goes, okay, next part. And I was like, dad, um, this is, this is the movie. This is it. And he's like, no, they have to take the ring. And I was like, no, that's the next two movies, dad. And he lost his shit. He legitimately ran up the stairs yelling, this is a stupid movie. <laughs> so what? he just, he didn't know the story. He didn't know that it wasn't all going to be resolved in one film. He I asked him later about it and he was like, I thought that we were just going to see more adventures of them in the movies. He thought it was going to be like sequels and stuff. Oh. So for 15 years, I could not convince my father to watch Lord of the Rings. I stopped asking after a point. I would like casually bring it up, be like, do you ever want to watch it? And he was like, no, I'm not interested. I'm like, that's totally fine. Um, last summer, during 
everyone's like quarantine COVID summer, my parents went out to our cabin and uh, like we didn't have internet there at the time. So of course we always take DVDs and stuff. And I realized when they came home that they had taken my copies of The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings, my extended edition Blu-rays. Um, oh and I was like, did you guys watch these? And my mom's like, yep, yeah, we watched all six. And I was like, how, how did dad feel about that? And she was like, he was actually really into it. Once he knew what to expect from the films, he, he really enjoyed them. And I was like, you guys know, those are the extended editions. Right. And mom was like, oh yeah, yeah. Like we watched them over the course of like two weeks. I was like, okay, good. So totally without my prompting, my dad finally watched all of the Lord of the Rings movies. Awesome. Now's the time to do it, right? right. Why not, right? Yeah, no, I'm I'm super proud of my parents for both watching it because it's like not their style at all. But it was just like after such the violent reaction he had the first time, I never Ooh. thought that was gonna happen. <laughs> Which tells you the power of cinema that he he opted to mm -hmm. sit down and watch it. I will say this this trilogy, like not even going to the extended editions in the Hobbit that came after, mm -hmm. but this original theatrical trilogy was such a big deal at the time because prior to this film, major big budget fantasy, like high fantasy stories, mm -hmm. were not mainstream. They and were the closest like, we got was a Phantom Menace was Star Wars Episode One, which you they are not the same category. No, I, but, I'm not but, even talking but, good and bad. I'm just like purely sci-fi like, versus fantasy. The number of nerds, people who decided that they wanted to invest themselves in these stories and in these worlds that were born from these films being produced because of Peter Jackson's in tense intention to their attention to detail rather and like the fact that we have marvel movies today we wouldn't have it without lord of the rings exactly so much of modern cinema on that side of things which you know that has its good and its bad points as well mm -hmm. but the fact remains this spawned multiple genres <laughs> spawned it's a yeah. superhero yeah. <laughs> uh so many different ways of exploring this media came about because Peter Jackson went and said, these are the stories that, you know, prompted the entire litany of fantasy and high fantasy literature we've had since, well, they were produced in the early 1900s. Like these books uh, started. The 1930s, Josh. Yeah, that's the early 1900s, Haley. It's before the halfway point of a century. We are not getting pedantic about this. I will get as pedantic as I want and don't make me make the same pun I made at the last Christmas party. Don't forget that I was the one that actually studied history for a while. Oh my that gosh, you too. Okay, anyways, you're both anyways. nerds. <laughs> <laughs> that big nerd energy. Uh, yes, yeah, to go with our big math energy, we have big nerd energy. Right. But anyways, the, the point still stands is that everything from, and I, I'm not surprised it won the awards it did because like Howard mm -hmm. Shore, amazing composer, that you the score think of is without that music. Absolutely, uh, like it, it's it's iconic. It is as iconic as the Star Wars themes. As um, mm -hmm. uh, what are other movies we talk about the scores on? I mean, we could go all the way back to Fogno and Ride of the Valkyries, where that shit originated. Thank you, Barry. Exactly. Uh <laughs> yeah, thanks, Barry. 
I don't think Barry listens to this. I doubt you. You know what, Barry Eiserif? We miss you, man. Dear. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, like this, this film, when I talk about like wanting to see something groundbreaking in film, this is what I'm talking about. I'm talking about um, taking a, an established story or taking your own story and saying, how big can we make this? How huge can we make this? And what can we do that is new and fresh and different? Um, they're, they're makeup techniques. We're mm -hmm. just oh, yeah. out of bounds. The prosthetics. I mean, I wear that. We talked about the use of perspective in order mm -hmm. to make the size difference between different characters, despite the fact that the actors were often around the same size. John yeah, Reese Davies is like a six foot tall man and he plays a friggin' dwarf. Mm-hmm. Like putting a lot, like we, we talked about the camera tricks they used on the wagon scene, even yeah. in the very beginning where they're showing Gandalf this four times the size of Frodo nearly. Yeah. Uh, and just like all of these little things that you don't notice. If you aren't aware that it's there, you just legitimately think, oh, that's a really small dude next to a wizard. But you it also, that? it doesn't take away if you don't notice. Like the movie is as good not knowing all of these fun little tricks that they have. It's almost better. <clears throat> mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I enjoy things more the more I know about them, but I, mm -hmm. I can see like for some people, the less they know about something, the more they enjoy it. No, I'm with you on that, Haley. I like to know how they did certain things. That's got, one of the things that got me into film was just yep. those kind of really neat tricks, the makeup, the different tools. Like, like we're talking about superheroes or just fantasy in general. Some of the right. shit that you have to do. To the the effects things. for the Nazgul and the world of the ring when Frodo puts yeah. it on. Like mm -hmm. at the time, that was groundbreaking. You mm -hmm. didn't see I, that. I do want to point out this is the same year that Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone came out. Um, but it so was, it's up there. Yes, absolutely does. Um, first, like first of all, Lord of the Rings looks incredible. I mean, we watched it last weekend. It looks as good as any friggin' Marvel movie I've just watched this past mm -hmm. year or whatever. Um, whereas Harry Potter didn't hold up as well. The effects were not mm -hmm. of the same quality. But you can see like where the work is coming for both. Um, mm -hmm. because like it's, they're both very high fantasy settings. And, and I think a big part of it is that Lord of the Rings had the budget to spend on those special effects. Mm -hmm. And when we say special effects, we don't just mean what they did with computers. 90% of what you see is a practical effect in some way, not, not just the perspective things. Um, but like building a set so that you can have, um, all the bugs disappear when the Nazgul come by. Um, the blood running down the leg of the of the, a Nazgul's horse. Like these are all key things to understand how big and scary this world is. And some of them you wouldn't even notice if you didn't know to look for them. Like you're mentioning the blood on the Nazgul horse's leg. Like little things like that that in the story are given great significance. Mm -hmm. Like I'm not going to go into the list because there are people who are much better equipped for that than I yes. am. Yes. But. The, the short version is that like all of these little things have a grounding in lore. And that's why I talked about Jackson's meticulous attention to detail mm -hmm. because it's all in there. And you, Kristen, and I talked about this before about the argument of apples and oranges and uh, just comparing different mediums. But what he did is he said, all right, we are going to be as faithful to the source material of these books as we can, because it was all given, like every word was given significance in this. So we're gonna pay attention to that. We're gonna shoot absolutely everything 
And then we're going to cut what we have to, to tell a story for the cinema, but then still have all of this material because they were so careful to get everything as close as they could possibly manage. And, and I think the, the interesting thing, Kristen, when you brought up earlier, um, the apples and oranges of like book versus film is that books, you can get into perspectives in different ways. You can get inside of a character's head without having to like explain why you're in the character's head. Um, and, and obviously that's a strength of a book versus a film. Um, but I think here, what's really essential is that the, the story is the same. You follow the same story beats and you don't, you don't feel left behind. You don't feel left out because you didn't read the book. Um, Mm. and I, I haven't watched the Harry Potter film recently, like the first one, any of them actually, um, but I feel like those ones did expect a little bit of knowledge from uh, from the viewer. Whereas Lord of the Rings was like, it's fine if you don't know anything, we will explain it all. Yeah, Which like if, Tolkien was not good at in the books. <laughs> no. But, but, but the other thing is that like, there is there is that massive lore and you're, you're right. You can watch the entire thing as a story in its own right. Mm-hmm. And it's nice watching a film where having read the book adds to the movie yeah. instead of watching it and being disappointed because it wasn't portrayed the way you were expecting. Instead you say, this is so over the top and above what expectations I could possibly have had for telling this story. And you and get if, to see all these little things where it's better if, to have read them, but it's, you don't lose anything. If you haven't. If anyone complains about Tom Bombadil not being in the film, uh, listeners, you have every right to slap them. Tom Bombadil is mm-hmm. a delightful character. I love him. He is super awesome. No need for him to be in the story. There's, there's no yeah, purpose. He, has, he, has he was an appropriate cut. Outside of world building, which again, yep. Tolkien was concerned with. And like, as, yep. so spoiler, I'm a massive D&D nerd. And, you know, as is Haley, Tolkien is always my go-to for how to do world building. Mm-hmm. And there's a reason for that. And he's got... Mm-hmm all of this stuff in there and Jackson did an excellent job of including that stuff without beating you over the head about it. And I think that kind of goes to your point. Yeah. And um, so I, again, huge nerd. I've watched most of the like behind the scenes and featurettes and commentaries on the extended (laughs) edition films. Um, And it was really interesting to see, uh, I think it's Philippa Boynes who is on screen. And she actually talks about how, Fran Walsh, um, Peter Jackson's partner, a literary and romantic partner, um, they kind of have to like, one of them is the face, one of them is the work. And it's very interesting how the three of them work together to write this entire script and to form this world. Um, and, and like how meticulous Fran Walsh could and could be and was. And so mm-hmm. I think, I think a lot of credit has to go to the three of them that they they wrote something that was manageable for an uh-huh. audience. Yeah, because this was, again, we've mentioned this already, It's uh-huh. this was extraordinary source material for the time. Uh-huh. Like yep. their, their effort and their just success spawned a whole generation of people who love this sort of thing. Yeah, yep. And, and brought new people into the fold. My parents being an uh-huh. excellent example. Uh, like dad's always been into fantasy and sci-fi. Like he's the reason I'm a nerd. Um, mm-hmm. But the Lord of the Rings was just, it's very, very daunting. And 
I, I am still surprised that they watched it and that they enjoyed it. I, I don't think they'll rewatch them anytime soon. <laughs> Well, I was just gonna say, like, you guys were like, been kind of going a lot of back and forth. And I'm like, listening, and I'm like, I follow along. I get it. I think it's amazing when you have a community that can really talk. And I love how in depth it gets. But, like, speaking as an outsider, I'm like, it is a lot to yes. chew over. And you guys kind of like touched on already about how good they are bringing people into the fold. But it, it's a fucking lot. It is. Yes. And it's very interesting to me that was nominated for the Best Picture Oscar because it's absolutely not what you would expect. Um, and I, I think this was an effort by the Academy to expand what, what the Best Picture could be and to say maybe it could be this other thing. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, it's not exactly a spoiler to tell everybody that Return of the King won Best Picture the year it was nominated because this this movie is the foundation. I have a very important question for the two of you. Yep. Of the five movies that we watched and talked about today, uh, A Beautiful Mind, Gosford Park, In the Bedroom, The Lord of the Rings, Fellowship of the Ring, and Moulin Rouge, which do you think was the best picture of 2001? I think I've already answered that. What is your thought? Well, you have to, you have to answer it in a format of the podcast. Yeah, what's in the soundbite? I was trying to let you go first, but fuck being polite. <laughs> yeah, it's me and Josh. Fuck being polite. Exactly. Um, I would probably have to say a beautiful mind. Milan Rouge would be a close second, but I would say for one very specific reason, a beautiful mind, mm -hmm. and that is, it is the only movie out of this entire collections that feels complete and resolved by the end of it. Mm. And fellowship, and we kind of talked about this earlier, but fellowship, as much as I love the movie, it it's lacks- It's the first of three parts. Exactly, they are, they are making as simple a setting as possible to draw people into the series. And because of that, while it is amazing as a foundation, it lacks the kind of resolution and overt emotional impact, emotional impact rather, that a film that wins this should have, which is what I uh, I prefer a beautiful mind for that, which I, I kind of, I think I agree with the Academy on that one. Yeah. Um, so while I give my answer, uh, my second question is, is there another movie that you think should have been nominated in addition or in place of? Um, and I would like the two of you to look at the Wikipedia page for 2001 in film, because it is bonkers. <laughs> All right, all right. Um, I was going to say, because if you think that we know off the top of our heads... No, no, absolutely not. I do not expect that of you. Um, so I, I struggled. I didn't struggle as much with this one as I have in other episodes. I think the best picture was in the bedroom. Um, it, it captured a very specific slice of life. It... I, I agree that there wasn't really a resolution, but there was an ending to it. And, and it was a very resounding ending. Like there was a lot of a lot of emotion in that ending. Um, and I, I just feel that a beautiful mind didn't, I just did. I didn't feel like it did enough to warrant being the best picture. I didn't feel like it put all the pieces together as well as it could have, not not in the way that in the bedroom did. That that was that was kind of my thinking behind it. 
And that's totally fair. I mean, again, I think pacing definitely is a it big factor. We really enjoy it. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, I've seen several films that I can already I know. say oh, that wasn't nominated. Well, I mean, like yeah. Jurassic Park apparently came out in two thousand. Jurassic Park three. Yeah. Yeah. I love. I'm. I'm a Jurassic Park fan. I wouldn't. I don't know if I would nominate it, but it's pretty fucking up a, there, right? Honestly, so I, mean, I was just I was going through the list. Um, so I mean, Save the Last Dance came out in two thousand one. <laughs> yeah, I know Donnie Darko really fucked. Donnie Darko, just, uh, The Wedding Planner, um, Saving Silverman, which is not I'm particularly say, a good movie, but. Jetly in the one was one of my favorite movies growing up. Watching it again, I'm like, oh man, that was such cheesy writing. I don't know what they were thinking, but Jetly. Yeah. Um, you know Enemy at I'm, the Gates. I'm actually surprised that Enemy at the Gates didn't get nominated. Memento. Shrek. Shrek, Shrek Wait, won Memento Best Animated. Was yeah. Memento also, Spirit was a Away. Fuck. Yeah, Spirit Spy of the Kids. Spy Tale, screw everything else. A Knight's Tale was easily yeah. at near the top of that list for me. I've, like, I've never seen a Knight's Tale. You have never. What? Y'all, chill. Okay. What? <laughs> I am bringing over my shitty old original DVD copy of A Knight's Tale, and we are sure. going to get and watch Paul Bettany be the best fucking character you have ever seen. Sure. Oh, fuck. Like, the movie overall is good, but he mm-hmm. is a treasure. Uh, the Mummy Returns. Eh. eh. I'm Pearl Harbor. Eh. Oh, yeah, Pearl Harbor. That was yeah. a big movie that year, I remember. I, uh, Jet Jackson, the movie, came out in 2001. Do you guys oh, remember? I, oh, my God, that... Uh, I <laughs> love, Jet Jackson was one of my favorite shows as a kid. It was so good. Okay, Super Troopers. Let's be Super real. Super Troopers. Okay, now we're just listing off movies. No, <laughs> but like, what I'm saying is, two, 2001 was what a year for movies. Like, you have all these incredible things. Lara Croft, Tomb Raider, The Fast and the Furious, um, AI, Artificial Intelligence, Crazy Beautiful, um, Scary Movie oh, 2, Final Fantasy, boy. The Spirits Within. Like, so many incredible movies, and they're so all over the place. And the fact that the Academy decided to pick these five is really impressive and and says that like in a year of incredible movies this was these were the absolute best and i do agree with that yeah that's fair these these were really good movies even if i wasn't really a huge fan of a couple of them that's probably more a stylistic difference than anything else yeah legally blonde wet hot american summer the tim burton planet of the apes I think we can agree that Legally Blonde was not exactly. Oh, but it was the oh, Princess it was Diaries. Okay, well, Osmosis <laughs> Jones. Freddie yeah. got fingered. Right. I'm I'm actually surprised that Captain Carly's Mandolin didn't get nominated. I I would have expected that because it's a very classically Oscar nominated pounding sound. Thanks for listening to Nominated. Follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at NominatedPod. And please use, use the hashtags, hashtag the Gator Father and hashtag who is Russell Crowe. 
Next episode will be the films from 1956, Around the World in 80 Days, The King and I, Giant, Friendly Persuasion, and The Ten Commandments. Uh, Sabine. Satine. Sorry. Sabine. I said Sabine, to be fair. That's even worse. Anemone. 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 I have uh, some regrets doing this between the three of us because we sidetrack each other so easily. <laughs> I mean, you know. Um, Satine. <laughs> um, oh my god, Krista, every time I try to start talking. <laughs> You know, after you complaining about me bringing the snack over, yeah. you know, being disruptive and trying to go at me, here you are, falling off your high horse. Uh, <laughs> God, Haley, do you know what I used to get confetti? Okay.